Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over a 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to BlackTalkRadioNetwork.com. Helping you filter through the noise. Real talk. Black talk. The internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit WorldAfropedia.com, the African-centered encyclopedia a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. WorldAfropedia.com You know, and I know, and I, and I want to say this, you know, with an eye to, you know, all the people that have come before us, you know. So, you know, I started, when I started grad school, I was actually reading black people. I wasn't introduced to black philosophy by, you know, a problem race. I, I became interested in it because I was reading, you know, people like Blue Outlaw back in the 70s. You know, I was reading Charles. I was reading, you know, not so much Lewis, but I, I stumbled on his work. You know, Al, I, wrote, I read your anthology. You know, I read, I read black people who were, who were fighting, who were writing with a certain anger and passion. And that's what I wanted to imitate. That's the kind of philosophy that I wanted to do. So it was never a kind of project where I thought that we had to mediate you know, what we said about the realities that we experienced. And I think that, as Charles told me once when he was fussing at me, you uh, think my work doesn't let white people see themselves in it, which is why I have all these problems. Uh, but I don't write for white people. And I'm not saying that out of any kind of provoc, you know, I'm not trying to be provocative. I just don't write for them. I write for us. And I think that the perspective that gives us when we do things, when we come to philosophy more in struggle, is why you have an environment that's so full of compassion and acceptance and understanding, even if we disagree. Uh, that's what I always thought this place was. It was always a home, an environment where young philosophers can meet older philosophers, and older philosophers can teach young philosophers their stories. Right, and and that's that's the way that I approach doing um, black philosophical work. So when I talk about a black criticism, this is actually something that I was thinking about uh, a long time. Uh, you know, given some of the things that happened to me in philosophy, and just given the reactions, that the, 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 the suffering I see, you know, and I know a lot of people don't think of it that way, but, you know, I go to these white conferences, and, you know, like SAP and these other places, and I hear black people, young black scholars, trying to get their work across. I hear, uh, you know, young brown people trying to get their work across, and I see them being judged by white people who are not only ignorant, but incapable of becoming close to understanding them. And I see that pain. 
of constantly being told that you should do this or tweak this or read this, et cetera, when their work is fine. And it's just about the audience that is being the judge of it. Who that, That's the power that the demographic of white people have. And it's, it's painful to me that the brilliance of our people, the brilliance of black people, the brilliance of black thinkers has to always be, be sanitized and censored and lessened so that white people feel more comfortable about what they're hearing. We have to do it through Dewey, we have to do it through Marx, we have to do it through everyone they say is okay, rather than actually just expressing ourselves in a rigorous way about what we're doing. So this paper is going to be uh, an indictment of philosophy's retreat from race, uh, as well as what I call a black criticus, which is not an argument about the critique of philosophy, but actually what would emerge if we think of philosophy as being refuted. If white philosophy is in fact false and an illusion, then what takes its place as a metric or understanding of, of various kinds of text problems, uh, etc. So the experience of confronting death, being fearful of being killed, doing my job as a race critic and threatened violence for thinking about racism in America, has a profound effect on concretizing what's at stake in our theories about anti-black racism. Whereas my work on race and racism and philosophy, philosophy earlier in my career was dedicated to the problems created by the mass ignorance of the discipline, the political debates and ethological history of black philosophers of the 19th and 20th century, I now find myself thinking more seriously about the way that philosophy, really theory itself, our present categories of knowledge, like race, class, and gender found through disciplines, actually hasten the death of subjugated people in the United States. Context of white supremacy. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Thursday, November 22nd, 2018. So I have been told this is our fourth installment. The man not race class genre and the Dilemmas of Black Manhood, Dr. Tommy J. Curry. Uh, we're picking up, we are in the midpoint of chapter one, moving on to chapter two today as well. The audio that you heard at the beginning, uh, that was Dr. Tommy Curry, uh, actually very recently, uh, that was just within the last couple of weeks or so, uh, he was given a talk uh, with Dr. Charles W. Mills, former guest on the program, author of The Racial Contract and other texts. Uh, but he was given a talk, and I think over the first three weeks that we've been discussing the book, the question has been raised, uh, who do we think this book was written for? Uh, I think Thomas in New York uh, said uh, he thinks this book was written for white people. Uh, he doesn't doesn't think that this was a book that was intended for uh, a black audience. Uh, he asked me and I said, I think this book uh, reads like it's written for a white audience. However, there is a shout out to the cows uh, in the text. And I think we had one of our other uh, listeners, readers, uh, respond to that question uh, and said that if you pay close attention, he is referencing lots of non-white, specifically black authors as we proceed through the text. Uh, I think that's important, but the audio you heard Dr. Curry addressing that point specifically. Something to think about as we proceed. Without further ado, I will step aside and we will get started. This is Dr. Tommy J. Curry, The Man Knot, 
Audio segment number one. The Black Man's Burden, Black Male Resistance, and the Mother Right. Something peculiar happens when the black male is historically reconstructed. Instead of observing black male activity throughout the centuries as the product of reflective human beings, black male resistance is theorized as an accumulation of defects. Historical analysis is reduced to the choosing of random examples, sometimes centuries apart, showing that individual black men excluded or held traditional white views of black women. This is part of an effort to show 19th century black men to be synonymous with the black macho of the 20th century. Every political organization led or created by black males is thought to be nationalist and by definition to exclude black women. The evidence for this conclusion is not based on any actual survey of the political organizations black men have founded. Rather, it is constructed on the basis of the American Negro Academy's all-male leadership. The role black women played in the National Negro Conventions, the Afro-American League, the Atlanta Sociological Laboratory, and the Negro Society for Historical Research are thought to be irrelevant to any understanding of black male political aspirations and behaviors. This imposed opposition is analytic. No amount of evidence seems to be able to disprove the overarching ontological relationship that black maleness is thought to have to anti-black femaleness regardless of the century in question. Black women historians have certainly made the case that 19th century black men were not simply mimetic beings attempting to recreate white patriarchy. Rosalind Turborg Penn, for example, argues that the lack of anti-suffrage organizations among black men, their support for the education of, and their political organizing with black women indicate that 19th century black men expressed an egalitarian view of the relationship between black men and women. Turberg Penn's claim is quite similar to Paula Giddings' argument that all black women abolitionists and most of the leading black male abolitionists were feminists, despite their prioritization of race over what is now called gender. Elsa Barkley Brown considered the effect the right to vote had on gender relations and found that black men thought of the right to vote as a racial right where church forums empowered black women to decide the direction of the vote alongside black men. Even black women at the dawn of the 20th century, such as Gertrude Mosel, noted that the men of the race, in most instances, have been generous, doing all in their power to allow the women of the race to rise with them. Almost a decade ago, Martha S. Jones, speaking to black men's relationship to black women's public activism, said that 
readers may be particularly struck by the prominence of male allies, men who spoke and often acted in support of women's claims for rights and public authority and insisted that their presence complicates previous understandings of African-American feminism. Despite these examples and challenges, black gender theory, specifically the historiography of black men, has not budged. While it is important to understand the relationships between black men and women throughout history, this relationship itself should not act as the measure of black men's awareness of or participation in patriarchy and its resulting sex roles. In other words, black men's gender consciousness has been studied only by the extent to which it conforms to 20th century ideas of women's liberation in the form of gender inclusivity and mirrors black women's attitudes in the 1800s. This tells us nothing about how black males historically thought of black manhood, only how we judge their disagreement with contemporary political ideology. For example, black men's supposed embracing of black nationalism is claimed to be gendered and patriarchal, while their simultaneous rejection of imperialism, which is widely understood to be the international projection of ethnocentric nationalism and masculinity is relegated solely to racial concerns. There is no actual rationale for such divisions. They are simply intuitions asserted to maintain theoretical coherence. Imperialism exceeds the limits of this paradigm, so it is discarded as excess and relegated to the category of race in an effort to maintain the narrative of gender. Imperialism and colonialism have always involved deeply sexualized narratives and the creation of a racialized male other who terrorizes the nation, family, and women of empire. Such narratives specifically concerned the black male and they highlight why black men's rejection of imperialism the black man's burden is central to our understanding of black males' sexual consciousness and their particular historical genre. The projection of white masculinity globally was not simply about male dominance. It was an expression of the familial hierarchy that demarcated the boundaries of the white race. Rudyard Kipling's poem, The White Man's Burden, was an example of this racial claim. Kipling proclaimed the white man's yearning for domination and imperial conquest. Nations such as Cuba, the Philippines, and Puerto Rico were uncharted territories filled with black bodies for labor and sexual conquest. Kipling urged the white race to send forth ye best breed Go send your sons to exile. The idea of the white man's burden conveyed the racial demands of white superiority. As the literary theorist Patrick Brantlinger writes, Kipling clearly believed that the white race was charged with the responsibility of civilizing 
or trying to civilize all of the dark, supposedly backward races of the world. The white man's burden was both a projection of whiteness and a projection of white maleness. It was a duty aimed at establishing the white race as the master of the darker races the world over through the order of civilization, an order established on the patriarchal rule of the family. Black males, whether they were intellectuals, soldiers, or workers, rejected this decadent imposition of white male rule because they were depicted as primal and unformed men black men understood what the white man's burden meant for the darker races the savageness of the male figure the dark rapist accompanied the rationalizations for imperialism black men responded in great opposition to the exportation of white patriarchy. As a direct response to Kipling's call, Dr. J. H. McGee founded the Black Man's Burden Association in 1899. Other black men wrote Black Men's Burden poetry mocking Kipling's imperial call. The Reverend H. T. Johnson, editor of the Christian Recorder, held that black manhood stood in fundamental opposition to that of the white man. The black man's burden was a conceptualization of the dark race's humanity that recognized the vulnerability and suffering of the world. It was a concept of empathy with those who were victims of colonization. Pile on the black man's burden, wrote Johnson, "'Tis nearest at your door." Why heed long bleeding Cuba or dark Hawaii shore? Hail ye your fearless armies which menace feeble folks. The black man is burdened to live within the world created by Kipling's call. The burden of the black man is that he knows of the death and misery that accompanies white civilization. It is, in fact, barbarism since every problem black, brown, or red, is sealed with bullets, blood, or death. J. Dallas Bowser's Take Up the Black Man's Burden similarly linked the condition of the black male in America with that of darker races the world over. The haughty Anglo-Saxon was savage and untaught. A thousand years of freedom a wondrous change has wrought. Take up the black man's burden, black men of every clime. What though your cross be heavy, your sun but darkly shine. Stoop with a free man's ardor, lift high a free man's head. Stand with a free man's firmness, march with a free man's tread. Black men stood with the darker races for freedom, for the ability to determine their own civilization and escape the tyranny of the whites. They demanded to be self-determined. Like X-Ray's poem that introduces this chapter, Hubert Harrison's The Black Man's Burden fundamentally opposes the providence placed upon the white man's shoulders. Harrison suggests that there is a fundamental 
opposition between the order of the white man and the political rights and sexual propriety of the black male. In Georgia, an amendment was proposed suggesting that colored men should be allowed to vote only if two chaste white women would swear that they would trust them in the dark. Identifying the primal rapist myth underlying such a proposal, Harrison said that it is either by force or fraud that the great bulk of Negroes of America are political pariahs today. The white man imposes inferiority on the darker races by dissolving the distinction between the labor and the people who labor. The imperial pursuit does not bring civilization or freedom. It deprives the colonized of humanity. Harrison writes, when a group has been reduced to serfdom, political and economic, its social status becomes fixed by fact. American Negroes are deprived of their work, but also their lives by lynching. America is the example of what the white man's burden brings. It is, as Harrison says, a horrid mockery. The poetry and writings ignited by Kipling's insistence for imperial conquest offer evidence of a fundamental break between the notions of white manliness and black manhood at the close of the 19th century. Black men did not stop here, however, in their attack on patriarchy. At the dawn of the 20th century, some black men embraced African matriarchy as the preferred evolutionary schema to European patriarchy. For example, according to Edward Blyden, Jean Fino's race prejudice showed in all the essentials of real manhood, physical, intellectual, and moral, the Negro is not inferior to any other section of the human race and progress under conditions similar to those which have contributed to the development of the more advanced portions of mankind. Finot argued that there are no inferior or superior races, but only races living outside or within the influences of culture. Blyden saw that Fino's work upset the ethnological origin of civilization. He understood that Africans could, in fact, have, or more importantly, be matriarchal, a feminine race, and still grasp onto civilization. Whereas Finot saw the assimilation of traits as proof of the equality of races, Blyden insisted that it is Africa that looks down on the civilization of Europe. As he says of the civilized Africans, they have grasped the principle underlying the European social and economic order and reject them as not equal to their own. Lauding the Bundo society the ancient order of women that served as a school for African mothers as the foundation of African society, Blyden defends the African family's emphasis on motherhood as civilized. Dubois was even more explicit. Like Harrison, he maintained that the patriarchal racial evolution of Europe created the economic and, by effect, cultural debasement 
not only of the woman of the darker races, but also of the African mother idea, the power produced by the exploitation of the body of the black male as labor, slave, commented on by Dubois in The Negro, 1915, is in tandem with the regeneration of his labor from his mother's womb, which is commented on in The Damnation of Women. Dubois argues the father and his worship is Asia. Europe is the precocious, self-centered, forward-striving child. But the land of the mother is and was Africa. Dubois deliberately addresses the Bakufin mythos at the root of the West's supposition of African inferiority. The mother right, which suggests that as a stage of racial development, the matriarchal is inferior to the Apollonian. This is a direct challenge to Cooper's invoking of Phoebus or patriarchal reason. Dubois writes, nor does this all seem to be solely a survival of the historic matriarchate through which all nations pass. It appears to be more than this, as if the great black race in passing up the steps of human culture gave the world not only the Iron Age, the cultivation of the soil, and the domestication of animals, but also, in peculiar emphasis, the mother idea. Dubois is so committed to this idea that he argues, when Toussaint Louverture and Henry Christophe founded their kingdom in Haiti, it was based on old African tribal ties, and beneath it was the mother idea. The black race creates the world, its politics and history, around the cultivation of this matriarchal presence. It is matriarchy, not black imitation of the patriarchal order of family, nation, and empire that leads to black liberation for Dubois. The black man's burden was deployed against the divine right of white men and women to rule non-European societies. It was an attack on the sexual order of white supremacy. Black men understood that the order of the white family, presumed to be the structure of civilization itself, was false. They conceptualized the possibility of families ordered on the mother, stateless societies, and economic conditions that did not require the reduction of the darker races to labor and looked to Africa for her mother right. As Dubois explains, the self-realization of the Negro race in the early 20th century was not simply for their rights as men, but for the ideals of the greater world in which they live, the emancipation of women, universal peace, democratic government, the socialization of wealth and human brotherhood. Black males rejected the gender of white civilization by refuting the evolutionary claim whites had to racial superiority. Rejecting the Victorian order of the family, projected as the relation to the nation has to civilization, radically ruptures the standard of civilization deployed by white supremacism. Black men created the polemics allowing the darker races 
to create culturally relative orders of being and indicted domestic slavery as the ethnological basis of blackness. Unlike present discourses, which presume that the category of woman can be corrupted only by whiteness, black men have shown that womanhood itself depends on the colonized other, the savage black male rapist, robbing black men of their historical sensibilities because such understandings do not conform to the categorical meanings imposed on their time reeks of caricature. Conclusion. Throughout the literatures of the 19th and 20th centuries, patriarchy has placed the black male in direct opposition to white womanhood and, consequently, in opposition to the white family, nation, and empire. His very existence not only threatens the reproduction and hierarchical order of family, but also exposes patriarchy as a system fundamentally dedicated to its reproduction and thereby the power and status of the white woman over racialized others. The black rapist is the societal manifestation of this logic. The black male is defined as a rapist, a primal beast to mark him as unsuitable, permanently excluded from civilized society. Violence defines the border of the black male's relationship with in the United States. He is anathema too because he threatens the order founded on white patriarchy. Contrary to current theories which presuppose a mimetic relationship between black men and white men in which the black male has undergone a nearly complete assimilation of the ideological and material economic, political structures of patriarchy, the history of black males in the United States tells a vast political and anthropological distance from white male power. Black men simply do not desire it. In Negroes with Guns, 1962, Robert F. Williams identifies this very same relationship among white womanhood, racial segregation, and Ku Klux Klan violence in the Jim Crow South. Williams holds that white womanhood is the rationalization deployed by white patriarchy to justify its murderous logics towards black males. The white woman was the justification offered to the white public for the terrorism launched against the black community. Lynching, the castration of black men, was offered as recompense for being black and male, raced, and rapist. Williams offers a powerful illustration of this claim. People have asked why a racist would take his wife into a riot-torn community like ours on that Sunday. But this is nothing new to those who know the nature of clan raiding. Many Southern racists consider white women a form of insulation because of the old tradition that a Negro is supposed to be intimidated by a white woman and will not dare to offend her. White women are taken along on Klan raids so that if anything develops into a fight, it will appear that the Negro attacked a woman 
and the Klansman will, of course, be her protector. Williams' understanding of the relationship that white womanhood has to white supremacist violence motivated Eldridge Cleaver to articulate the symbolic relationship white womanhood holds next to the black man. Cleaver was a great admirer of Negroes with guns. As Kathleen Cleaver recalls, I saw it when I first came out to the Bay Area in July of 1967 in Eldridge Cleaver's apartment. He had a whole case full of them and he was handing them out. And anybody that came into the Black Panther Party had to get a copy of Negroes with guns. They had to read it and we had to discuss it. The next chapter investigates the impact of Eldridge Cleaver's unpublished manuscript, The Book of Lives, alongside Soul on Ice, the book originally titled White Woman, Black Man. Chapter 2 Lost in a Kiss The Sexual Victimization of the Black Male During Jim Crow read through Eldridge Cleaver's The Book of Lives and Soul on Ice. I'm perfectly aware that I'm in prison, that I'm a Negro, that I've been a rapist, and that I have a higher uneducation. I never know what significance I'm supposed to attach to these factors, but I have my suspicion that because of these aspects of my character, free, normal, educated people rather expect me to be more reserved, penitent, remorseful, and not too quick to shoot off my mouth on certain subjects. But I let them down, disappoint them, make them gape at me in a sort of stupor as if they're thinking, you've got your nerve. Don't you realize that you owe a debt to society? Despite his impact on the development of black power and American civil rights organizations in the 1960s to 1970s, Eldridge Cleaver's insights and works have been reduced to the ramblings of a self-admitted rapist. The identity politics of today and the hegemonic force of disciplines have made Cleaver into an archetype of the Black Panther Party and the presumed entelechy of black men over the past six decades. Taken to be the moral position of all progressive scholars, these mythologies have persisted without challenge and with little attention to the erasure of the sexualized violence of Jim Crow and American segregation that Cleaver and other black writers such as James Baldwin and Richard Wright were reacting against. In our ideations, Cleaver simply appears as a rapist. He had no history, no trauma, no socialization or oppression that could make him such. He emerges from history as black phallic negativity, the symbol of the black male's lack, and is codified as the representation of all black masculine politics, the black macho. There is no denying that Eldridge Cleaver was a criminal. He was twice convicted, once on drug charges in 1953 for the possession of marijuana and again in 1958 for rape with the intent to murder. 
Later, he fled in exile after an assured conviction for a shootout with the police. Existentially, one could regard Cleaver as a torn subject, a traumatized individual, or a psychopath. However, none of these labels standing in for any number of deviant dispositions in the minds of scholars fully captures the relevance and theoretical significance of Cleaver's reflections on the events unfolding before his very eyes during the black struggle for civil rights in America. Cleaver's insights into anti-black violence and death, capitalism, government surveillance, and the global reach of white supremacy are indispensable components of an intellectual account of the emergence of these systems from the 1950s to the present, yet his voice is absent because his life and body are unacceptable to the disciplinary position of a theorist. He is a criminal, alleged murderer, and rapist. He is not the stuff of which academic theory is made. Cleaver is solely defined by the horrors described and admitted in the opening pages of his classic Soul on Ice, 1968. Most scholars ready to dismiss Cleaver for his homophobia, misogyny, and sexism, all arguments filtered through the lens of Michelle Wallace's reading of his work and the psychoanalytic disposition in Black Macho and the myth of the superwoman, have done little work to complicate this interpretation or even look for more in the writings of Cleaver or the Black Panthers to question it. In fact, as the emerging focus of academics has turned more toward the writings of prison intellectuals in an effort to address the ever-expanding prison industrial complex, black male political prisoners have been largely ignored or erased as part of the moral penance of decentering black men in disciplines altogether. Many of these discussions concerning the role of the political prisoner, the black revolutionary, and the prison industrial complex as a continuation of neo-slavery occur without any attention to the sexualized violence used to target black males or any need to center the black male's experience of imprisonment from slavery to Jim Crow within these discussions. Most discussions of the prison industrial complex are praised simply for venturing into the topic such that it can be considered under public discussion. The prison industrial complex is not rigorously analyzed as an institution with a historical libidinal obsession toward black male flesh. Analyses of the prison are praised simply for condemning it as a kind of neo-slavery without the benefit of a historiographic reorientation toward the period of slavery continued by the ongoing murder and imprisonment of black people, especially young black men. In an unpublished manuscript entitled The Book of Lives, Cleaver analyzes the cultivation of the homosexual revolutionary cause from inside the prison. He is quite candid and open about his own homosexuality and challenges one to think about black manhood beyond our popular politics claimed on the basis of identity histories. He insists that the reader recognize the specific societal 
and historical vulnerability of black men. This text is a prelude to Soul on Ice and resonates with his account of the black male as the super masculine menial. It is a fantastic analysis, however, that stops short of the escape the black male has from the objectification of the white imagination, the creative phobic engine of the white maniac. Cleaver captures death while announcing the white woman's culpability and her role in the rape, murder, and fetishization of black men in the process. Cleaver writes to flee being a convict. He writes to become a man, human. His work is offensive precisely because he diagnoses the psychojuridical trauma of gender that keeps the black man out of harmony with the system that is oppressing him. Reflections on Cleaver's homosexuality and its clash with black macho ideology. In the essay, Eldridge Cleaver, he is no James Baldwin, 1973, Huey P. Newton recalled a dinner he shared with Baldwin in 1967. Having been invited by Baldwin, Newton chose Cleaver to be his guest. When we arrived, according to Newton, Cleaver and Baldwin walked into each other and the giant six-foot-three-inch Cleaver bent down and engaged in a long, passionate French kiss with a tiny, barely five-feet Baldwin. Newton was shocked, saying later, I did not understand then, but now realize that Baldwin, the native son, who had neither written nor uttered a word in response to Cleaver's acid literary criticism exposed Cleaver's internal contradiction and tragic flaw. In effect, he said, if a woman kissed Cleaver, she would be kissing another woman, and if a man kissed Cleaver, he would be kissing a man. Contrary to popular belief, Soul on Ice was not the undoubtable Bible and spiritual manual of the Black Panther Party. In fact, the text, especially its view of masculinity, was debated within the party. Newton argued that the text ultimately showed the projection and reach of Cleaver's self-hatred, a self-hatred Cleaver projects on Baldwin that is more accurately a reflection of Cleaver's own repressed sexuality. As Newton notes, yes, Baldwin is a homosexual, but he is not a depraved madman. Baldwin was an open homosexual, Cleaver repressed his homosexuality. The problems, difficulties, and internal conflict that Cleaver has with himself because he is engaged in a denial of his own homosexuality is projected onto an eternal self, Baldwin, in order to defend his own threatened ego. Although Newton's essay has been included in anthologies for more than a decade, no serious scholarly attention to Cleaver's homosexuality has surfaced. For some, Susan Brownmiller's view that Cleaver's thought pattern and the ideological construct he used to justify his career as a rapist reflects a strain of thinking among black male intellectuals and writers 
that became quite fashionable in the late 1960s is all that needs to be said about this era and about black male productions on sexuality. Similarly, black feminist renderings of Cleaver, such as that found in Wallace's Black Macho and the Myth of the Superwoman, depict Cleaver to be Leroy Jones' other half, an even more effective voice for Black Macho. Like Brown Miller, Wallace believes that Cleaver did a lot to politicize sexuality in the black movement. The problem, of course, in her view, being that Cleaver politicized the black macho or the latent historical black rapist identity. Black macho and the myth of the superwoman centers the sexual lust the black male has for the white woman as the driving force behind his quest for civil rights. In Wallace's view, some black men wanted white women simply because they were so hostile to black women, while others believed that white women gave them money and made them feel like men. This attraction was not fleeting, but epical for Wallace. As she remarks, some white women were quite blunt. They wanted black cock because it was the best cock there was. This sexual order ushered in by the civil rights movement, given the new economy of sexual competition created by the black man's access to the white woman and new political power, led black people to imitate America's standard of the family and focus on heterosexual relationships between black men and women. This realization, situated on an allegedly new sexual opportunity for black men, also revealed the material disadvantage of black masculinity. Wallace notes, the Americanized black man's reaction to his inability to earn enough to support his family, his impotence, his lack of concrete power, was to vent his resentment on the person in the society who could do least about it, his woman. His problem was that she was not a woman. She, in turn, looked at the American ideal of manhood and took the only safe course her own fermenting rage and frustration could allow her. Her problem was that he was not a man. As Wallace saw it, as blacks began to lean more and more toward Americanization, they internalized self-hatred. The black man, however, took a peculiar devolution for Wallace. As the black man internalized the Americanized version of himself, he began to embrace the sexual caricature of the buck as a way to compensate for his economic and political emasculation. Before its resuscitation by black men in the 1970s, Wallace insisted that the buck made his last appearance in The Birth of a Nation. According to Wallace, the buck is the only black stereotype that is sexual. He is brutal, violent, virile, tough, strong, and finds white women especially appealing. Wallace concedes the Ku Klux Klan, the lynch mob, and Jim Crow legislators said their task was to prevent the black man from violating sacred womanhood. In pursuit of this mission, thousands of black men were lynched, 
murdered, degraded, their homes destroyed. Wallace maintains that instead of inspiring disgust or even fear of white womanhood, this historical brutality only reinforced the notion of the black man's access to white women as a prerequisite of his freedom. In fact, it was this dynamic that shaped the minds of both those white women who came south as part of the civil rights movement and the black men who met them. Wallace, like Thomas Dixon Jr.'s The Klansman, is arguing that black men pursue civil and political rights to gain sexual access to white women. Like early 20th century buck fiction, she imagines that black male political power is motivated by the sexual capture of white women. Later in the chapter, we see that this is the exact opposite of what Cleaver intends. The black male activists of this time became representations of this sultry imago. Stokely Carmichael was the nightmare America has been dreading. The black man seizing his manhood, the black man as sexual, virile, strong, tough, and dangerous. Martin Luther King Jr., the opposing mentor of black power's militancy, is described by Wallace as a glaring impossibility, a dream of masculine softness and beauty, an almost feminine man. Malcolm X was seen as virile, strong, and generated a powerful, fearsome presence who had spat in the faces of the white woman and white man. While King's murder proliferated, the rationalizations for militancy and a black macho posture it was Malcolm's death that killed the chance for a black patriarchy and launched the fixation of a then-imprisoned Cleaver with obtaining his manhood. Cleaver, inspired by the hypersexualization of the cool, hip, black male activist depicted in the writings of Norman Mailer, was a more effective black macho than even Leroy Jones. Reading Black Dada Nihilismus as a political program, Wallace notes that Cleaver, as a former rapist, had a similar revolutionary sentiment. According to Wallace, like Jones, Cleaver's raping was not a crime against women, but a political act. As Wallace sees it, black women and white women were victims of America's history, and the white man was a victim of his own Frankenstein monster. This hyper-machoism then depends on a rampant hyper-heterosexualism. In Wallace's view, a tendency apositionally described as homophobia. She continues, if one is to take Cleaver at his word, the black homosexual is counter-revolutionary, one, because he's being fucked, and two, because he's being fucked by the white man. By so doing, he reduces himself to the status of our black grandmothers who, as everyone knows, were fucked by white men all the time. However, it would follow that if a black man were doing the fucking and the one being fucked were a white man, the black male homosexual 
would be just as good a revolutionary as a black heterosexual male, if not a better one. Black Macho would have to lead you to this conclusion. If whom you fuck indicates your power, then obviously the greatest power would be gained by fucking a white man first, a black man second, a white woman third, and a black woman not at all. The most important rule is that nobody fucks you. Wallace presents black men as culturally and physically committed to the black macho mythology. Black men in both their heterosexual and homosexual variety are anti-black women because she is the one who does not get fucked. It is these impressions and representations of black males more than half a century later that are made synonymous with black masculinity. In this view, black males have lacked reflection and, unlike their black female counterparts, only assimilated the caricatures of white society rather than resisted them. As Jared Sexton remarks in Race, Sexuality, and Political Struggle, reading Soul on Ice, in many ways, Wallace's efforts in that now canonical black feminist text provide a sort of interpretive framework for much more popular and academic opinion on the movement in general, the Black Panthers more specifically, and Cleaver in particular up to the present. Despite Wallace's substantial revision and recanting of the Black Macho in the introduction to the 1990 Verso edition of her text, along the lines of many of the substantial criticisms such as Paula Giddings' The Lessons of History Will Shape the 1980s Black Macho and the Myth of the Superwoman Won't, Alison Edwards' Rape, Racism, and the White Woman's Movement, and Malana Karinga's On Wallace's Myth, Wading Through Troubled Waters. The black macho idea continues to haunt any engagements with Cleaver's soul on ice. Regarding Cleaver as a figure and thinker, Sexton correctly states that black macho ideology wards against the critical interpretation versus mere rejection or avoidance of his thought prior to his exile in 1968. Regardless of its large-scale acceptance as a serious analysis of the black power movement and the political tendencies of black men from the 1960s forward, black macho and the myth of the superwoman is little more than the impressionistic renderings of a young black woman observing the events of the civil rights movement offered to her by mainstream media. Over a decade later, Wallace admitted that her view of black men was rooted in her traumatic experiences with her father and stepfather. As she says about her interaction with black men generally, I expected and found hostility, anger, competition, violence, dishonesty, misogyny, and ignorance. These experiences had a lot to do with my theories about black men and black male female relationships as a black feminist. While many contemporary gender scholars would celebrate such an epistemology, Wallace's view rarely rises above our more accepted notions 
of the stereotype. As she admits, I am not saying that there aren't some black men out there who are mean to women. What I am saying is that I was not actually aware then that there was any other kind of man. Wallace saw black men as the unvarying trauma of her childhood and incapable of loving black women. Wallace actually concedes this point, saying, There are many black men who love black women, and vice versa, although I didn't know it at the time I wrote Black Macho. Wallace created a narrative offering America a view of black masculinity, its political strivings rooted in America's fear of black male militancy and miscegenation. Wallace offered white America a reason to hate black men. She gave them an autoethnography of the torture she suffered at the hands of black men and called it theory, a moniker that solidified her text as the creed all disciplinary interpretations of black masculinity must honor decades later. Although this goes unmentioned by the various scholars who remain inspired by black macho and the myth of the superwoman, Wallace has admitted there is no actual evidence of the black macho idea she presented. In the 1990 introduction, she writes, If I had to do it over again, I would no longer maintain that black macho was the crucial factor in the destruction of the black power movement, not because I no longer think it is true, at least in some sense, and certainly it was true in the world I inhabited then, but because it was a claim that was impossible to substantiate at the level of sociological, historical, or journalistic data. While it may be a valid interpretation of events to say that a brand of black male chauvinism contributed to the short-sightedness and failure of the black power movement, there are other interpretations equally valid. For instance, that police and CIA repression were also factors in the demise of the movement. Moreover, from another perspective, although not necessarily my own, the black liberation struggle can be viewed as never ending or beginning, but rather waxing or waning, usually invisible to the dominant discourse virtually since blacks became slaves in the Americas. Wallace's hesitancy is conveyed only more sharply by her mother, Faith Ringgold. In A Letter to My Daughter, Michelle Wallace, in response to her book, Black Macho and the Myth of the Superwoman, Ringgold makes scathing indictments of Wallace's position. Ringgold writes, for example, that the term black macho has no substantial reference to the black men who provided leadership in the black struggles of the 60s, many of whom lost their lives in order to make life better for all of us. These ideas, insists Ringgold, emerge from her daughters having mixed cinema with life. Ringgold asks her daughter how she could liken black manhood to that of a psychopath or James Bond movie. James Bond is a white man and violent death is the theme that sells in Western culture. How can you attribute this phenomenon to so-called black macho? Open your history books and let us add up the score. 
so many for the black man, so many for white American. Who is the winner now? Throughout the text, Ringgold expresses disbelief and disappointment in her daughter's argument. Ringgold is adamant that her 14-year-old daughter's revelation of the black male in the 1960s simply was not substantiated by facts or experience. Michelle, our family has lived for three America's concession to so-called black machos demand for his manhood and it is the only concession he can count on getting. In a brief review of her mother's book, Wallace admits, almost nothing I wrote in Black Macho would I repeat or continue to agree with now. I feel like I have changed in every way possible and that I am always changing my opinions about such matters in particular. My mother's firmness and certainty continues to fascinate me. Despite these admissions by Wallace herself, the black macho remains an authoritative lens from which to view black manhood within the academy and throughout its various concentric publics. Because the black macho myth demands a heterosexual obsession with fucking white women, there has been little discussion beyond the hyper-heteromasculinity allegedly embodied by Cleaver or a questioning of the seemingly natural, necessary, and inevitable homophobia to which the hetero-black male identity is committed. In fact, even Vincent Woodard's The Delectable Negro, 2014, a book about the literal and figurative consumption of the black male body, the eating of the black male, cannibalism sustained by the homoerotic sexual urge of racism, merely mentions Cleaver's homosexuality and his review of Baldwin in Soul on Ice as a contradiction given their kiss. In the introduction to The Delectable Negro, Woodard argues black gays in the late 20th century found themselves in a double bind of history and memory which had an unfortunate result. Black people equated their sexual identities with homosexual violation dating back to slavery. For example, Eldridge Cleaver associated anal sex between a white man and black man with a racial death wish extending back to slavery and with miscegenation. Cleaver conflated his contemporary understanding of the homosexual person with the particular and different ways in which homosexuality was thought of and configured in the context of slavery. Woodard did not have any knowledge of Cleaver's The Book of Lives, of course, and thus chose to read Cleaver as fearful of thinking about homosexuality in its fullness rather than as a black male theorizing the economic and political operation of homoeroticism in society and the prison. There is no second thought to Cleaver's possible homosexuality and the genealogy that arises from within the context of the black gay man shackled to revolution and only later problematized by the cosmopolitan identity thought to make up the black gay male experience in the 1960s. Woodard argues that the inability 
to creatively imagine homosexuality during slavery reflected a fundamental fear within the black community of moving outside of the normative categories of masculinity, reproduction, pleasure, and family. Is this truly Cleaver's problem, given his reflection on the homoerotic and repressive nature of the prison and the stud farm? Cleaver configures sexuality as a matter not of identity, but rather of historical social engineering. Sexual desire is created in the subjugated and animated by subjugation. The white male retreating into the mind alienates the body by creating the nigger brute as his antithesis. This brute is neither heterosexual nor homosexual. He is fungible, bending to the desire, fear of the white society that surrounds him. Woodard's view demands that we understand masculinity, reproduction, pleasure, family as teleological constituents of one another that to some extent they entail the accompaniment of one another successively. Is this truly the case? Is it the case that the historical assemblage of what we call black and masculine has avoided or not imagined the homosexual simply because it runs against the imagined norm of black hypermasculinity or super heteronormativity? What are the texts and moments that offer the ontological case of black male heterosexuality while eliding the historical moments of black male sexual vulnerability altogether or debasing them to accidents of black maleness inconsequential to the overarching construct we take to be black masculinity? Such a position emerges not from historical proof, but rather from the imagined reality of excluding the reflections of black men on their condition from slavery forward. It pretends that black men did not comment on their own sexual vulnerability to white men and white women. Even worse, such a narrative asserts that even if we do read the experiences and reflections of black men on their sexual victimization and the dynamics of white colonial erotics on their flesh, it would have no consequence for our current thinking about black masculinity or gender more generally. Context of white supremacy. So we will pick up, we're in chapter two, we'll pick up the subsection, The Book of Lives and Cleaver's Homoerotics. That's what we will pick up at next week. Or excuse me, second audio segment, second audio segment. Uh, if folks have commentary, put down that turkey leg, drop that slice of pumpkin dash sweet potato pie, Feel free to dial in if you have a question, thought, comment uh, from the first portion of the reading. The number 641-715-3640. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 
if you would like to participate. Number again, 641-715-3640. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. If we have anyone who's read Michelle Wallace's Black Macho, I would be curious to hear your thoughts if you read the book. I know it's older, so, you know, if you maybe read it some years ago and feel like, you know, I don't remember every detail or I don't, you know, have a, a pristine recollection uh, of the text, that's fine. But uh, if if we have anyone listening live and you have uh, read Michelle Wallace's Black Macho, just give us your thoughts, uh, maybe impressions when you read the text uh, or the context if you had to read it for a class or whatever the case, I'd be interested in that. Uh, and again, you can always listen live at Black Talk Radio Network. You can go to the page for the context of white supremacy and listen to the live audio there, or you can go to tune in context of white supremacy. You will see us. I just tweeted out the link for us, uh, share it on social media. Folks can listen in if they have uh, free time from the plantation and are sitting around, can have constructive dialogue on Dr. Tommy J. Curry's text. Again, Black Macho, if we have any folks who've read. Folks who called in with a hand up. Uh, let's see. If you dialed in with a hand up, line should be open. Feel free to chime in. Can I be heard? Uh, greetings, retired firefighter. Yes, sir. Greetings, Gus, and greetings, everyone else. I did not practice uh, any parts of the event that's called Thanksgiving. Uh, also, uh, I have not read uh, the book by Miss Wallace. Matter of fact, I was I was about to ask on what was her first name. I did, I just heard, kept hearing the last name Wallace, and uh, couldn't factor in on who that was. Uh, but I have read Soul on Ice. Did we did we read that book also uh, uh, on? Uh, uh, no, sir. Did we read that? We haven't. Okay, no, sir. All right. Uh, but I know I've read it a long time ago, uh, and um, the uh, report on uh, Mr. Cleaver. Uh, victim of racism and supremacy. I'm not surprised uh, from what I've read uh, in Soul on Ice, as well as uh, some people who actually uh, were members of the Black Panther Party um, uh, that uh, you know knew him uh, pretty pretty well. Uh, uh, he was a uh, charismatic, uh, that's the best word I can put to it, uh, person as well as, uh, as far as his speeches, there was a longstanding uh, analysis of him that he, he was uh, very good at influencing 
the younger membership because he was right. He was somewhat older than the average member of the Black Panther Party. He was like in his early 30s, where the average uh, party member was either a teenager or early 20s. And uh, he actually had, he had, you know, a lot of influence of, of his uh, way to uh, influence others. Uh, matter of fact, he was able to influence uh, Bobby Hutton on the day that he was murdered uh, by the uh, Oakland police on that day. And I think it was uh, the day after Martin Luther King's uh, murder. Uh, where him and uh, Bobby Hutt were uh, caught in a house and was in a shootout with the police. But uh, I did, I was not aware of his, uh, of his uh, homosexual uh, uh, adventures. I wasn't fully aware, but I'm not surprised. I'm not, I'm not surprised as far as that concerned. Uh, and uh, I think, uh, Mr. Curry was accurate on him uh, basically suppressing that part of his his life uh, because he, number one, was married. Uh, I can't think of her name. She also was a party member and uh, an administrative official in the Black Panther Party. Uh, What was her name? I just can't think of her name right now. Kathleen. Uh, Kathleen, right. Kathleen Cleaver, yeah. Uh, And... uh, I think they had at least one child. I could be wrong, but I think I remember reading that he had at least one child. But uh, yeah, I, I think he I think he was making a lot of good points in his uh, analysis of. Uh, uh, I think he I think what because I came in not at the beginning, so I'm thinking he was giving a uh, a brief on how homosexuality uh, fluctuates uh, within uh, quote-unquote something that's called black male uh, macho or black male manhood. Uh, I may not be accurate with that, but that's what it sounded like he was making an analysis of and how homosexuality, uh, uh, like a disease, uh, actually fluctuates into uh, the psychological aspect of 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 uh masculinity with black males uh due to the primarily due to the system of racist white supremacy that that's that's its uh historical entry point in my opinion it would be that uh and how that actually goes from a physical interaction to deep psychological uh uh interaction uh that's transferable from black male to black male uh i think that may have something to do with why mr fuller lately over the last three or four years has been making the statements about the future uh perspective uh is the attention that would be on uh, to almost totally eliminate the essentialness of black females 
as far as the uh, from the standpoint of sexually and uh, the importance of the black female vagina to the, that the the interest of the system of racism and white supremacy is to almost eliminate venturing off the uh, a little bit. Oh, I am. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay, uh, and that, that's what I get for not not uh, going into the beginning part of the book, uh, which I came in by halfway through. But uh, anyway, I'll just keep my mouth closed right now. Then, since I'm venturing off, and uh, listen, and I'll catch up. Thank you. Much obliged, uh, retired firefighter uh, Michelle Wallace. Uh, answer to the question: the author's uh, full name, Michelle Wallace, uh, Black Macho, and the superwoman i'll get the whole title for you in a a second but you said you just kept hearing the black macho and her last name wallace uh the let's see other folks who dialed in if you have a hand up if you have commentary uh you'd like to share on the text feel free can i be hurt yes sir Hi, right, greetings, Gus, and greetings to all the callers and listeners. Uh, this is uh, Henry from Chicago. Um, <clears throat> on page 70, uh, he quotes the boys uh, in The Damnation of the Woman, where he says, The father and his worship is Asia. Europe is the precarious, self-centered, forward, starving child. But the land of the mother is and was Africa. Now, that's interesting because I thought about uh, Chancellor Williams' book, uh, The Destruction of Black Civilization, and uh, how he mentions that uh, there, was, there was a topic he was discussing in the book about how, uh, how Egypt became white, and particularly uh, white Arabs uh, came in and basically uh, uh, came in and took the African women and when the offsprings uh, came out, they were more uh, they were more loyal to the fathers, who were the the, the white Asians or the white uh, Arabs, uh, as he calls it in his book, uh, than than their African mothers. And this was part of his uh, discussion on on how uh, Africa, you know, was 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 uh, the first part of colonization of Africa uh, when they came in and you know typically raped. The, the African mothers. Um, in, uh, on page uh, 72, uh, he says that the history of black males in the United States tell of a vast political and anthropological distance from white male power. Black men simply do not desire it. I think I emphasized this before. Uh, black men are just trying to survive in the system of white supremacy. Uh, we're not looking for power. We just want to survive. Uh, that's all black men are, are trying to do. Um, in the in the uh, chapter two, with uh, when he was uh, talking about Eldridge Cleaver, um, uh, he states that uh, he is not the stuff of he is not the stuff of which academic theory is made. It, it's so interesting because, uh, and I've read Soul on Ice myself, uh, Cleaver. Uh, had some very, very interesting uh, perspectives uh, in that book, which is presented uh, also in, uh, in Dr. Curry's book. And I know a lot of people dismiss, you know, his, his claims because of his language and uh, because he's not, you know, quote-unquote academic. But, you know, there are a lot of people uh, within, with, within the academic, well, not even the academic, but a lot of people who, 
who are just very observant that they can that can con, uh, that can convey their thoughts in a way where if you look clearly they can you know you can understand it. Uh, and and Cleaver is one of those guys. Uh, you take somebody like Neely Fuller, who uh, I don't think he has an academic degree, but uh, he's one of probably one of the people who. You know, you ask him about white supremacy, he can give you a very clear definition and, and how it functions. Uh, take somebody like Malcolm X, who has an eighth grade education, is one of the most, you know, sounds like one of the most educated people uh, that, that, that you can ever hear. So it's interesting how uh, it's easy to dismiss somebody that doesn't have academic credentials, but yet they give clear and, you know, they give clear views and, uh, you know, without having some sort of academic degree. And uh, in regards to uh, uh, Faith Ringel, who is uh, the mother of Michelle Wallace and, and her response to, you know, her daughter's, uh, her daughter's letters, uh, I was looking up Faith Ringel, and I guess she was an activist herself and was also an artist. And... Uh, she had a sentence here that says uh, on page 79 that these ideas, talking about uh, her daughter's ideas, insists Ringo, emerged from her daughter's having mixed cinema with life. And what's so interesting about that is I saw something where Miss Ringo had sued black entertainment television for use of artwork that the, the I guess uh, – I guess the uh, the channel had displayed of hers on the on the television show Rock. Now, what was so interesting was Rock originally was on Fox Network, and I guess BET picked it up on syndication. But uh, she sued BET because, uh, unfortunately, uh, because I guess her artwork was displayed on the show. But she sued BET because BET refused to pay her the royalties uh, for displaying her artwork. So I I thought that was uh, that was pretty interesting. Uh, and uh, that's uh, that's all I have for now. I'll mute my line. Much obliged. Uh, I get if you don't know now, that's fine. Or if you take a moment, did Fox uh, pay her royalties for the use of her artwork, or did they just? Um, yeah, I, I I don't know. I I was looking to see that. It didn't seem like she sued Fox, but. You know, maybe Fox did pay her for her royalties. I'm not sure, but it, it, it's clearly, you know, there's clearly a a, uh, a lawsuit that she filed against BET uh, for her artwork. Interesting. Much obliged. Uh, other folks who dialed in with a hand up, if you have commentary to share, line should be open. Proceed. see other hands uh, while folks are waiting if they're getting uh, their notes together thoughts together I'll share some of the notes I had interesting to comment on Cleaver or anyone for that matter uh, being dismissed because of their academic credentials or lack thereof uh, Cleaver did teach at the University of California Berkeley which is generally a, a highly regarded uh, white institution uh, he taught there, uh, was a professor there uh, in 1968. So even if he didn't have uh, certain 
degree. Uh, if he didn't have whatever academic accomplishments, uh, he was able to get a get a teaching position uh, at UC Berkeley uh, by 1968, the same year as the aforementioned uh, shooting with, or yeah, police shooting with he and Bobby Hutton, where Bobby Hutton was assassinated. Uh, notes that I took from the first portion of the reading that we did this week, uh, which is the end of chapter one and the first part of chapter two. Uh, I thought it was significant him taking time to point out different factors, the fact that you did not have uh, black male organizations uh, created to oppose uh, black females being given uh, suffrage, uh, the opportunity to do professional voting, uh, that you didn't have that, that you had lots of prominent black males who were speaking out uh, and saying that we want to include uh, black females in the process of voting. And we, we view this uh, as a group uh, act of supporting uh, counter-racist work and let's come together and talk about, you know, how we should use the vote. I thought all of that was very important because I think consistently on this program and beyond, I hear that uh, trope that black males uh, just want to mimic white males and carry out uh, patriarchy. Uh, and Dr. Curry looking and saying, let's go back and look at, at evidence uh, and scholars from the time reporting to see what was their view? What are they seeing? What does the evidence show? Uh, let's see, continuing. Let's see, what else did I highlight from today? Rudyard Kipling. Uh, we've had our book club for six years. I've lost count of how many times Mr. Kipling's uh, work gets referenced on the broadcast. I was even going to ask people if they uh, recall how many times uh, the white man's burden uh, has come up in the book club. Uh, let's see. I thought it was important as well. He talked about how the emerging focus for the last several years in uh, white controlled universities and the academies has been to move away from focusing on black males uh, while you continue to have a daily onslaught of black males slaughtered, murdered collectively here and abroad, uh, but moving the focus away from them. Um, I thought this was really important. He said the prison industrial complex is not rigorously analyzed as an institution with a historical libidinal obsession toward black male flesh. I guess that's one where I said uh, having a dictionary, right, might be uh, helpful. Uh, sexual desire, libidinal. Continuing uh, analysis of the prison analyses of the prison are praised simply for condemning it as a kind of neo-slavery without the benefit of a historiographic reorientation toward the period of slavery continued by the ongoing murder and imprisonment of black people, especially young black men. Uh, I thought that was really important because uh, a, a major point of the text is black males are victims of sexual violence. Uh, and not just uh, the prison and even talking about the rapes that are between convicts, but guards, Dr. Curry emphasizing female guards included male and female guards and that all of this is uh, set up and by design. You'll hear more as we go with Eldridge Cleaver from Soul on Lights, but I thought that was a really important point that there will be more to come on that as we proceed. Um, I thought it was so important, his his breakdown of the black macho and the myth of the superwoman, 
the black macho portion sounds so similar to black love is a revolutionary act. That's why I pointed out the feverish uh, Michelle Wallace uh, says that black males came down with high fevers during the so-called civil rights movement. Uh, Pamela Evans Harris, black males, feverish for white women. It sounds so similar. And I think that's important because uh, when I see those type of patterns, I think that's important because I think the system of racism, white supremacy, there are ideas that are enforced. Uh, there are ideas that are always encouraged, supported. The notion that black males are sexually after white women is that is the entirety of the system of white supremacy. And frequently, many victims believe this as well. Uh, I think I just I think that's really important uh, in him emphasizing that this this is the driving force. This is the main reason that black males are getting involved in the civil rights movement is sexual access to white women. And I just, I find that uh, farcical beyond farcical. Uh, and in addition to black misandry and promoting the system of racism, white supremacy. Uh, oh. He says, this is still about Michelle Wallace's text. He says, the black man, however, took a peculiar devolution for Wallace as the black man internalized the Americanized version of himself. He began to embrace the sexual caricature of the buck as a way to compensate for his economic and political emasculation. An idea that also was in black love is a revolutionary act. If people recall, uh, she had the portion in the text where she said that black males, despite black females who are in a better economic uh, position that they would spite them by choosing white women. Uh, remember, she says, uh, Michelle Wallace says that the last incident of the buck in cinema, the last appearances in Birth of a Nation, another film that comes up many, many times. Uh, let's see, on the program, comes up often. Mm -hmm. Curious, he says, uh, Martin Luther King Jr., the opposing mentor of Black Power's mili militancy is described by Wallace as a glaring impossibility, a dream of masculine softness and beauty, an almost feminine man. This is Wallace. All of that is in quotes. The, this is Michelle Wallace's words. I was curious if people had a thought on that. Malcolm X was seen as virile, strong, and generated a powerful, fearsome presence who had spat in the faces of the white woman and white man. Uh, again, that's all Wallace's uh, work being quoted. That metaphor, Malcolm X spitting in the face of, of whites, I don't know what that uh, means. The first thing that I thought of in this metaphor was the incident when the white woman came up and asked what she could do to help and he said nothing and he regretted it and talked about it in detail in his uh, autobiography uh, what he had said to this uh, young white woman uh, I do not think of that as spitting in the face of white people and particularly some of the things that he said uh, later on but I mean regardless of you know I no idea what that metaphor uh, means I someone talks about paying attention to metaphors regularly uh, See. Uh, there's a sentence Wallace presents black men as culturally and psychically committed to the black macho, macho mythology I think when I read it it was Wallace presents black men as culturally and physically it's Wallace presents black men as culturally and psychically committed to the black macho mythology uh, let's see 
Wow. And reading Michelle, I have not read. That's why I was curious if we have anybody who's read Michelle Wallace's uh, Black Macho. I have not. What I am reading here from it, because he quotes and he has a big, uh, massive quote here, many, many sentences that are quoted from the book. But what I'm reading here, where she says, if I had it to do over again, I would no longer maintain the black macho was the crucial factor in the destruction of the black power movement. Not because I no longer think it is true in at least some sense. Uh, and she says, while it may be a valid interpretation of events to say that a brand of black male chauvinism contributed to the short sightedness and failure of the black power movement, there are other interpretations equally valid. For instance, that the police and CIA repressions were also factors in the demise of the movement. Just that right there. And again, bold face print. I have not read Black Macho and the myth of the superwoman, Michelle Wallace. I've not read it. But what I'm reading here, this sounds like another book that I would say is in the running for one of the worst books ever, if I were to read it, but I've not read it. And it just sounds like absolute nonsense. Like nonsense meaning someone who is extremely ill-informed about what is happening. And I pause when I see some, you are telling me that you think the number one factor for the device of the, because she says crucial, that the crucial factor in the destruction of what is called the black power movement, black male chauvinism, and that that is an equally valid reason for its demise as police and CIA repression, where you have whites, powerful whites, not bumbling, defective black male Negroes, powerful whites with a history of killing and subjugating black people who set out for years with a plan, we will study these Negroes. We will spy on them. We will kill them. We will uh, create all sorts of conflict between them. We had racial matters, the FBI secret file on black America from 1961 to 1972. If you're not telling me that you had black people with a budget and think tanks who could sit down and say, we're going to think how we can promote black male chauvinism. If you can't find that, but there are stacks and stacks of information that we have never even seen about what they did, black people that they killed during the civil rights movement. And I'm supposed to regard this as serious scholarship? Nonsense. And I'm pointing this out with emphasis because this book had massive influence. I know reading is not popular. Lots of people do not like to read. This is a book that many, many people read. And particularly, many people, if you went to college, I would say probably sometime in the last 40 years or so, uh, I would say especially if you did something that related to civil rights movement, uh, feminist studies, black feminist studies especially, you probably would have had to read this text. Huge influence in people thinking, yes, feverish black males. Yes, all they want is white women, a book that the author has come out and recanted that still has huge sway because racists wanted to have huge sway. They are tremendous at getting victims of racism who are confused. Michelle Wallace is a victim, snatching victims who are confused and using them to promote, strengthen, refine the system of racism, white supremacy. They are spectacular in that effort. Uh, last piece I'll say on this. Uh, this is Dr. Curry writing, Wallace created a narrative offering America a view of black masculinity, its political strivings rooted in America's fear of black male militancy 
and miscegenation cowbell. Wallace offered white America a reason to hate black men. She gave them an autoethnography of the torture she, sh she suffered at the hands of black men and called it theory. Put that in quotes. Great passage. And particularly the, the, the caller that mentioned the point that said where Michelle Wallace's own mother came out to rebuke her for the black macho and her put down of black males, black misandry. She said that her daughter had mixed uh, television in with reality. And I thought that was so critically important because I said the same thing about black love as a revolutionary act. I said that repeatedly, even when listeners were emailing me and writing it, how dare you bash Pam's work. This sounds like someone who watches a lot of television Dennis Rodman and Slim Thug were quoted uh, in the text. This sounds like someone who maybe watches a lot of television. Maybe you see a lot of uh, on TV black males with white women on TV now, 21st century, and are upset about that. Maybe that could be happening, but wow, uh, that just stood out as a significant, important pattern parallel. I'll pause there ahead of the notes. Others who dialed in with a hand up, if we've not heard from you at all, if you have commentary, uh, proceed. May I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, yes. Uh, thank you, Gus, again for the platform. Um, greetings to callers, uh, listeners. Um, I, really, some great points that you just mentioned, Gus. I was I was glad you you she made that great correlation with actually media. I mean, television, and this this kind of. Um, I could, I guess you could say warped sense of reality of what's actually going on and what really needs to be addressed. And I think that's one of the key points. I think that, that keeps, that I keep seeing as far as uh, confusion goes is most people I do run into have the, uh, so quote unquote, let me uh, rewind back a little bit. Um, most black women that I run into that are feminists tend to watch a lot of TV that's what I've actually noticed, like literally, and I'm talking about, um, you know, the, the house, desperate housewives of whatever they're, they're infused into it. Um, but great point. Um, that being said, I'm just going to jump to, uh, the, the quote here by, um, I believe this Harrison, Hubert Harrison. Um, it's on page 69 or at the bottom, uh, it states the black man's burden fundamentally opposed the providence and place upon the white man's shoulders. Harrison suggests that there is a fundamental opposition between the order of the white man and the political rights and sexual property of the black male. I think this is this is a really a, a great quote by Hubert Harrison. I have one of his books. Um, he's renowned quite a bit um, here in in New York. I, I, because of his uh, his stance on a lot of um, issues um, po politically, and, and obviously this is one that I I never actually even realized that he quoted and spoke about. Um, the next one is a, another quote on six is another statement on uh, sixty eight. This is a quote from uh, I believe Gertrude Gertrude Mosso, and this is again a sign that. Black feminist studies, like they, they tend not to cover these types of individuals where she states the black woman at the dawn, where he states the black woman at the dawn of the 20th century, such as Gertrude Russell, um, noted that 
the black men of the race in most instances have been generous doing all in their power to allow women of the race to rise with them. I think this is a such an important quote. Like it's just, I mean, we don't have too many um, black women of this era quoted by black feminists. Instead, we have black feminists quoting again, Michelle Wallace. They have them quoting. Um, oh my gosh. I, I'm, I apologize. I, for, I forgot Roxanne Gay. Um, we have them quoting all these other women of the time, but not dealing with women like this and putting them in historical context in relation to what black men were actually doing at the dawn of the century at that time. Um, uh, another one, uh, by the way, is that on 68 of the same, on 68 at the bottom of the page, the projection of white masculinity globally was not simply about male dominance. It was an expression of familiar hierarchy that, and I, I kind of, I, I wanted to get some clarity on this, Gus. I, I kind of highlighted it because I wasn't exactly sure what he was expressing in this quote. That's why I'm highlighting this one. And if you, if yourself or the listeners could, could actually expound on it, that'd be great. But um, he says the projection of the white man of white masculinity globally was not simply about male dominance. It was an expression of familiar hierarchy that uh, democrated the boundaries of white race. Um, Rudy Kepling's poem, The White Man's Burden, was an example of this racial claim. Kepling proclaimed that the white man's yearning for domination and imperial imperial conquests, um, such as nations in Cuba and Puerto Rico and and such forth. I, I won't go on, but I was just trying to get clarity on what he meant when he said uh, it was an expression of familiar um, hierarchy. So um, I'm just going to highlight that. I have more, but I'll mute my line. Uh, we definitely want to hear other, other people expound on it if possible. Thank you. Peace. Much obliged. Much obliged. Uh, my thoughts on that sentence and in context again like you said he's talking about rudyard kipling's poem the white man's uh burden the projection of white masculinity globally was not simply about male dominance it was an expression of the familial hierarchy that demar that demarcated the boundaries of the white race uh, i think not just this sentence but i think in this whole uh section he is making a point to emphasize that white patriarchy uh, is not solely about white male domination or even uh, white male terrorism, uh, that white women are integral to white supremacy and even uh, what is thought of as white patriarchy. Uh, he makes the explicit point that they have to give birth uh, to these white sons. They have to instruct them on how to, white sons and daughters, uh, and teach them uh, how to function, practice racism, white supremacy. And he made the point uh, in the section in chapter one, and I emphasized it last week, he talked about how white uh, women yielded peculiar authority uh, within the slave plantation. I think that extends throughout, uh, and that power within the household in terms of how the white racist household is going to function and that just becomes an extension of the entire white racist 
empire. So I think that's what he means when he says that this project is not just about, it's the white man's burden, but it's not just about white male domination globally. This is about the entire white race, white men, white women, white children, their global domination uh, and how they're going to dominate uh, non-white people, because that's what he goes into, uh, the colonial project, the Philippines, Puerto Rico, whatever it happens to be, you know, this week, this century. Uh, that's what I think it is. I could be in error. We could certainly uh, ask Dr. Curry, put that on our boop note list to ask Dr. Curry. Uh, if other listeners, if you have a thought as to what may be uh, meant in this uh, sentence, the projection of white masculinity globally was not simply about male dominance. It was an expression of the familiar hierarchy that demarcated the boundaries of the white race. Uh, if you have thoughts on that or your other thoughts, if we have other people we've not heard from at all, proceed. Can I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Uh, yes, good evening. This is uh, Princess. Uh, I came in a little bit um, later on um, in the show, um, but I did have an observation about a, a few things that I've just seen just in the media this week. I know um, there's the Mercy Hospital uh, shooting, and I had noted in relation to uh, what you guys are talking about now in regards to uh, the book, uh, just the influence uh, the media has, especially it just seems to me that um, most, uh, at least black females that I encounter, I agree with the other caller, um, a lot of them do, um, rely more so on, uh, social media or just TV shows in general, um, that just creates a warped perception of, you know, uh, you know, relationship issues as far as between black males and females. But I had noted initially when the story had broke, um, I went to a couple of news feeds uh, up until they had released the picture of the individual. Uh, pretty much from what I saw on the news feeds, uh, a lot of Black females assumed that this was a Black male. And they were immediately talking about uh, toxic masculinity, which is, I, I, I'll be honest, I don't know what that really means because I don't even use the term, but it just sounds more like a lot of stuff that comes from, you know, feminists in general. Um, but I just saw an uptick in that up until they released the photo of the guy and, you know, basically this is a white male uh, or Latino, white Latino uh hispanic uh individual but up until that point you just had you know all i saw was just black females just saying see this is why you know black males need to you know they was just going into a litany of uh just black male bashing basically so i, I do believe that the media plays a, a role in that just want to make that point much obliged, Princess, the brute nigger. Absolutely, that's Dr. Curry was making that 
uh, point this week uh, that everyone becomes convinced uh, the danger of the black male, even when he hasn't done anything. We haven't even got a photo release of of who the uh, shooter is in this instance, and it's just assumed another nigra has run amok. You'd have more lynchings. Very, very common throughout the system of racism, white supremacy. Uh, any other uh, comments, questions? Folks want to make sure that they get in before we get to the second audio commentary. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, speaking of the uh, the Black Panther Party, which was a part of the uh, first first half reading, uh, uh, Angela Davis uh, mentioned that one of the reasons, if not the reason, why she didn't join the Black Panther Party uh, was because of the uh, "quote unquote" black male payoff. Uh, I'm tired tongue payoff tree uh, uh, that. Uh, basically was a turn off for her she mentioned uh and she's known as a uh quote unquote uh, black feminist as far as they're concerned i just thought i'll mention that uh, because i was hearing the later part of the uh reading and uh basically uh that always came up a lot and she was one of the people who was mentioning that as far as uh her opinion vgq VGQ, Angela Davis, uh, who will be referenced in the text as we proceed. Uh, I did also want to say, too, to the to the caller who pointed out uh, how important uh, he thought it was that Dr. Curry uh, included uh, black female scholars who are talking about and saying, hey, black males are, are doing a great job. They're uh, including black females and, and trying to practice justice. Uh, they're not trying to be patriarchs. They're not practicing toxic uh, male uh, misogyny or a toxic black masculinity. That's not what's happening. Uh, I think that goes to the point that was made last week by one of our callers that uh, in talking or thinking about whether or not this text is written for white people, uh, who the audience is, including uh, black historians, black scholars in that manner, I think is really important. And that uh, is something that Dr. Curry has emphasized for years, like going all the way back to like the very first time he was a guest on this program in like 2012, uh, that uh, white people cannot be the folks who become the reference uh, for everything and talking about racism. And that's, that, that's one thing that can be done to work against racism, uh, quoting other black people. Uh, when we're talking about racism, white supremacy, so it, it, it can be Stokely Carmichael, uh, Dr. Marimba Ani, Dr. Welsing, other black people uh, being quoted Dr. Curry, as opposed to whites constantly being the reference point when we talk about racism. Uh, I guess one other quick point, one other highlight that I thought was really important. Uh, he says the brute is neither heterosexual nor homosexual. He is fungible, bending to the desire, fear of the white society that surrounds him. Waters' view demands that we understand masculinity, reproduction, pleasure, family as teleological constituents of one another, that to some extent they entail the accompaniment of one another successively. 
I thought this was really important because, and I mean, wow, fungible, I think I had to look that one up. Teleological, had to look that one up. Can be a lot to unpack, but I think if you if you can sift through it, if you read through it a few times, uh, what he's stating here, unless I am misinformed, uh, is that he's talking specifically about the black male, not heterosexual, not homosexual, man not, uh, bending to whatever it is that whites want at this particular point in time. What you are, what you think, what you de uh, desire is totally irrelevant. You will be whatever I want. So if today I want to put you in a dress, that's what it'll be. If tomorrow, you know, I want to, uh, here's my wife, I want you to have sex with her. That's what it'll be. Uh, that is the system of racism, white supremacy. And I think that's the peculiar vulnerability that he's speaking to with regards to uh, black males uh, in the system. Unless I'm misinformed. Uh, any other comments folks want to get in before we get to audio segment number two? Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Okay. Uh, yeah, that was a great point with uh, Eldridge Cleaver being a professor at a university. Uh, also, too, uh, Dr. John Henry Clark uh, was a professor at Cornell as well, you know, and he doesn't even have a high school degree. So uh, it was a good point that you made on that. Um, in regards to the uh, the uh, the Michelle Wallace's work, the Black Macho. I was looking it up, and one of uh, one Gloria Stenum, uh race soldier, said that the book uh, would shape the 80s. I guess she was saying this in the 70s. But what was also interesting, one of the harshest critics of uh, the work uh, outside of Wallace's mother was somebody that was just mentioned, Angela Davis. She uh, criticized this work as well. Uh, that's all I have on my mind. As it should be. Just that right there, I think, is something that's significant for a book where the the author uh, has recanted and said that they wouldn't stick by anything. And that even it stands out as substantial as well to have somebody we're talking about racism white supremacy, white terrorism worldwide as an empire. That's what we're talking about to say that, you know, my opinions change on these subject matter, you know, week to week, day to day. You know, last week I thought it was the black male was feverish for white women this week. I don't know. You have to check in with me. Like That just does not strike me as serious scholarship that should become a foundation for how we think about racism and view scholarship for 50 years uh, unless... That's what the system of racism, white supremacy wants, which is just a different way of saying what I already stated. Uh, and I would add that for Eldridge Cleaver. How does a convicted rapist get a teaching position at the University of California, Berkeley? Like, what the hell? Like, uh, I, I would just put an asterisk there. Perhaps the system of racism, white supremacy. I was given Eldridge Cleaver's Soul on Ice, which I have read more than once, although we have not read it on the cows. I was given that book uh, by a white female teacher while I was in high school. Very confused about racism, white supremacy, but she gave me that. In fact, I was on the newspaper staff. It was the white woman who ran the newspaper uh, in high school who gave me that book. Uh, Soul on Ice, Eldridge Cleave, even think about that, to give a book like that to a teenager, uh, a white woman giving that book to a black male teenager with no explanation or, you know, 
Not even for an assignment, just, yeah, you should have Eldridge Cleaver soul on ice. No coincidence, no accident, Eldridge Cleaver would end up at Cal Berkeley, where I think Angela Davis was also a professor. Uh, time for one last comment, or everybody good? I'll assume folks are good uh, with that. We will get to the second audio segment. Uh, we are picking up the Book of Lives and Cleaver's homoerotics. That's the section where we're picking up at. More detail about Eldridge Cleaver and some of his unpublished works. Context of white supremacy audio segment number two. The Book of Lives and Cleaver's homoerotics. Cleaver's unpublished manuscript is undated, but reads as if it is a survey of his time in jail during the late 1950s. Cleaver's work is heavily autobiographical, placing him and his thoughts in direct contact with the personalities he creates to represent various aspects of black male character during his time. Cleaver begins the book by describing his encounter with a character he comes to call Little Jesus. He says, I first met Little Jesus in the Los Angeles County Jail in which I was kept while going to trial in 1957. This would suggest Cleaver is writing or reflecting on the problems in the text during his incarceration for rape. Cleaver describes Little Jesus somewhat strangely. He says he was charged with assaulting a white woman with a knife and snatching her purse, while nonetheless contending that little Jesus had the air of a black bourgeois thrown in jail for the first time in his life. Little Jesus was a Christian man married with two little children. He declared his innocence, believing that as a Christian he would be saved by God from the false accusation of assaulting a white woman. When challenged by the inmates as a fraud, he said that he felt like Daniel in the lion's den, that we were all foul and corrupt, steeped in sin, that we were all damned to hell, and that we were going to burn for our blasphemous remarks against his father, Almighty God, and his divine son, and our holy savior, Jesus. Little Jesus refused to get out on bail. He was convinced that the trial would clear him from any wrongdoing, that, after seeing his family and hearing testimony from his minister that he was a good black man, the jury would see that he was incapable of assaulting a white woman. According to Cleaver, such presentations mattered little to the outcome. The white woman said that she had been walking down the street one afternoon, minding her own business, and up popped this nigger. That little nigger, sitting right there, trying to look innocent now, snatched her purse and in the process stabbed her in her arm with a long knife. Little Jesus produced witnesses who swore on the Bible that he had been attending class at the church at the very time that this woman's purse was snatched. Cleaver writes and then adds, then he painted for the jury a picture of his life rooted like a tree in the Baptist church. 
Cleaver points out somewhat flippantly that little Jesus presented a model nigger that would make Booker T. Washington leap with joy in his grave if he could see it. A technically skilled, literate, voting Christian nigger with a family. Regardless, the majority of the jury voted not to convict him. His bail was reduced and little Jesus was let out. A year later, the district attorney took him to trial again with the same evidence but a different jury and convicted him. Prison is a field of study for Cleaver in the unpublished manuscript and Little Jesus is simply the first character of many who are inevitably trapped by the demands and laws of a racist society to protect white women at the expense of black men, their lives, and those of their families. What Cleaver rightly points out throughout the text is that the character of individual black males is ultimately irrelevant to the overall machine that produces and fills the prison. This representation of little Jesus, however, is simultaneously the fatalism of the world for a black man and the path toward salvation Cleaver finds through his own journey and struggles with the world. As he did in his later reflections in Soul on Ice, Cleaver attempts to situate blackness on the sexual foundations of white supremacy or, more accurately, the needs of white supremacy to sexually exploit the black male body as nothing more than flesh. The black man is defined by his corporeality. He is only the body a confinement that denies reflectivity and his capacity of mind. Cleaver has visited this theme more popularly in the chapter Allegory of the Black Eunuch in Soul on Ice, asking readers whether they had ever wondered why the white man genuinely applauds a black man who achieves excellence with his body in the fields of sports while he hates to see a black man achieve excellence with his brain. The mechanics of the myth demand that the brain and the body, like East and West, must never meet. Cleaver maintains that the black male body is reduced to flesh within a racist society. Thus, the black male becomes ontologically confined by the sexual order of society imagined by the white male. He is unable to simply act contrary to the ends assigned to him within this corporeal economy. It is through this condition, thriving on the physicality of the black male, that the white supremacist order makes the black male disposable and determined subjugated by the external forces of America's oppressive institutions. He, as body, has no natural resistance to the commands placed on his flesh as a prisoner, and it is this personification, representation of the black male as dehumanized that Cleaver uses to demonstrate to the reader that the black male is a criminal not simply in the prison but throughout his life in society. The realization that the black male is not free and has no need for faith is a central feature in Cleaver's rendering of Little Jesus throughout 
the book of lives. Little Jesus' faith did not waver upon his return to prison. Cleaver says, when he walked up and down the big yard, Jesus was his shepherd, and he had the aspect about him that he was waiting for a dazzling light to burst forth in the sky and for strong angels with invincible wings to swoop down and carry him over the walls. Resolved in his Christianity, little Jesus accepted the job and rehabilitation program that the prison officials set before him and braced himself, standing firmly on his faith in God for the monotonous process of appeal to unfold. Little Jesus is a character not of optimism, but of that faith in deliverance Cleaver sees as being inextricably tied to the suffering of black men in America. Despite all that is done, there is some resolve, an irrational and unfounded belief that systems, because of the force of God himself, will respond to the moral character of the oppressed. It is initially this faith that attracted Cleaver to little Jesus. One day, Richard, little Jesus, received a letter from his wife. It said that she had come to the conclusion that I cannot share a life of marriage with a Christian, no kind of Christian, even if less severe than you. His faith seemed to be denied by his wife, who no longer wished to share his religion, and word came down that the appeals board had upheld his conviction. Little Jesus had little left to stand on. Cleaver says, we stopped calling him Little Jesus because we no longer understood what that might mean to him. Slowly, Cleaver says, I watched Little Jesus become a convict. The world that he had been into had failed him, had split half in two. It lay now in ruins around his feet. He began to relate to the fact that he was in prison like everybody else. This transformation in little Jesus resonates with Cleaver's rejection of God in On Becoming in Soul on Ice. Our atheism was pragmatic, he declares to the reader. I had come to believe that there is no God. If there is, men do not know anything about him. Therefore, all religions were phony, which made all preachers and priests in our eyes fakers, including the ones scurrying around the prison who, curiously, could put in a good word for you with the almighty creator of the universe, but could not get anything down with the warden or parole board. They could usher you through the pearly gates after you were dead, but not through the prison gate while you were still alive and kicking. Cleaver himself was lost. He did not know how to interact with little Jesus without faith mediating, providing hope to them both. Cleaver confesses, if he was indeed an innocent man, and if at the same time he was really such a Christian, then I had right on the tier with me, just a few cells down, a nigger who righteously fitted the description of Job with a chain of long suffering. 
This vulnerability and the strength of Richard's belief attracted Cleaver to him. It is in this writing of the text that the reader sees that Cleaver is expressing not only admiration of and bewilderment in the character of Richard, but also desire for him. When speaking to the physical appearance of little Jesus, Cleaver describes him as a short man with smooth brown skin. Cleaver conveys to the reader that little Jesus was attractive and had a nice little smooth ass that stood up and out just like the nice smooth brown ass of a nice smooth brown girl. Cleaver was not the only one who noticed little Jesus's ass. According to Cleaver, everyone checked out Richard's ass, but it was not until one night when they were standing naked in the shower line that he himself realized his lust for little Jesus. I was standing in a line next to the one little Jesus was in and a few places behind him in the line so that I got a full view of his ass. I realized at that moment that I wanted to fuck little Jesus right in his sweet little holy ass. It was all I could do to keep from getting an erection. Cleaver understood the danger of his lust for little Jesus. His desire for Richard was dangerous in the prison. With all the wee-wee and asshole games that go down in the shower line at San Quentin, it is not cool to be standing there with a hard-on. It would be certain to be misunderstood because everybody there would interpret it in their own way according to what they saw in you or what they want you to be. This is a powerful moment in the Book of Lives. Cleaver discloses to the reader both his homosexuality and his vulnerability in prison as a black male. He shows to the reader the fungibility of the black male self, its ability, or rather, its lack thereof, to resist the desire and powers of others to create in the black male what they wish him to be. This vulnerability is vacating. It gives Cleaver reason for his lust for little Jesus and shows it was not impulsive. Cleaver's lust for little Jesus entailed great risk. Cleaver worried that little Jesus would reject his advances. He feared little Jesus to some degree, saying, little Jesus showed signs that if he ever turned away from God, he was perfectly capable of killing somebody. On the one hand, Cleaver confesses that he was hesitant to tell little Jesus because he could become violent. On the other hand, Cleaver was personally unsure of what exactly he felt for Richard. As he remarks following his initial desire to fuck little Jesus, I mean, did I specifically want to fuck little Jesus or was I just uptight having had no pussy for a long time now and just want to get down to fuck to come in something other than my own hand at night when I masturbated? Cleaver hated masturbating in prison. He felt contempt for the whole process and deeply remorseful for having done it. This contempt was totalizing and brought about a stark pain to the bottom of the roots of myself. 
we see here the problem of sexual desire that has developed for Cleaver both historically in his disavowal of homosexuality and in his denial of his lust for white women in Soul on Ice, his symbolic representation of the forbidden tribe of women. The prison made Cleaver into a convict. He experiences himself as the conduit of the sexual animus imposed on him as a rapist, the plaything of white society. As such, he is confused by his desire. After remaining suspended in amazement for a spell, Cleaver intimates, I wanted to fuck little Jesus. After relating to that fact, I started trying to figure out how to do it. Many readers will mistake Cleaver's lust for sex with another man as the provocation of the text. They will be overcome by it, while Cleaver's lust for little Jesus certainly does change the heteronormative hyper-masculine framing of Cleaver's life and our present interpretations of his work, a more central point is being made about the relationship of black male sexual repression, the fear and anxiety of it, and the manufacturing of the black male body as a purely sexual object product within the walls of the prison. The prison, to a large extent, negates the concepts of agency that have now become established as the origin of individual action. Cleaver is a prisoner. What he is told he is and what he imagines himself to be require an interiorized fantasy, not a deliberate action toward a self-authored end. For Cleaver, he does not yet know what he is to be. He is a fucking thing. He is thought to be so from birth. So in this moment, he doubts his desire and lust. This feeling he insinuates as care toward Richard, as merely his lust for pussy. His desire to fuck little Jesus then cannot be interpreted as Cleaver being an active agent and little Jesus being a passive object of his desire. The prison makes both black men fucking things and in doing so robs them of humanity and their ability to recognize what it is they really are. When Cleaver finally has the opportunity to have sex with little Jesus, he does so under the surveillance of the prison. The Garden Chapel was the place where sex with men happened in Cleaver's story. The Garden Chapel was away from the physical cells of the prison, but was nonetheless maintained by the officials of the prison as a space for men to have sex with other men. Cleaver knows that the Garden Chapel, the place marked out for the homoerotic, was nurtured by the prison itself. The question of whether or not the Garden Chapel was bugged had been debated for years. If it was bugged, then it must have been very important to the prison officials. If they heard everything that was discussed in the Garden Chapel, if they had all that information, then I can understand how the walls of that prison have stood for so long. Cleaver uses the chapel to illustrate the use of the sacred to maintain the sentience of the state. Even the place of faith, the boundary between the will of the flesh and the piety of the soul is ruled 
by the white sexual order of society. The chapel shows the reader that black male sexuality exists under the surveillance of the administrators. The prison and the making of the black male as convict. The prison is a coercive force constraining and reorganizing the very being of the black men within its walls. Contrary to the assertion of the hyper-masculinity of prison, black men lack the power to appeal to or access patriarchal masculinity in prison. In fact, it is their imprisonment that enables the anxiety that white society feels toward the black male body to be internalized as the psychology of the black male mind as the newly created convict. Eleanor Novak's work on black masculinity under incarceration reiterates this powerlessness of black men within prison. Masculine norms in prison are deeply affected by confinement, loss of autonomy, surveillance, rigid institutional rules, and lack of resources. The prison subsumes the black male self only as penis and flesh. In Soul on Ice, Cleaver notes that the penis, virility, is of the body. It is not of the brain. In the deal which the white man forced upon the black man, the black man was given the body as his domain. Toward the end of the 1960s, Cleaver had already worked out the role white administrators in both society and prison determined for the black penis. It was the symbol of pure animalistic brute sexual force, the criminal rapist beast. This is the transformation Cleaver notes in the Book of Lives. In a society founded upon the ethic of reward and punishment, pleasure and pain, profit and loss, the lives of those inside its prisons will be organized around pain and structured into the prison system will be forms intended to hurt. You are startled when you first feel this grasp, this constriction holding you like a vice and the natural impulse is to flee. You turn and turn inside of yourself like a rat scratching inside a cage to get out until you realize that you are trapped and that though you are in pain, you cannot move. So you sit there stoned like the wall. You are becoming something else. This becoming highlighted by Cleaver has some very real parallels to the first chapter of Soul on Ice. In the original typewritten text of the Book of Lives, Cleaver writes, You become something else, but then scratches out the type and changes it to, You are becoming something else. This process of change, substantiated later as the chapter title, On Becoming, dialectically marks an indeterminacy in his thinking about his sexuality and his suspension of any sort of normative value he places on it in the late 1950s while in prison. He notes, everyone who feels the grasp of a prison is changed. I won't say for better or for worse. 
We were all changing and we knew it. And we were terrified at what we might become, most of all because we didn't really know what it would be. Here again, there is an editorial mark in the text. Initially, it reads, at what we were becoming, which suggests that there is a coercive determination, a fixity that they all knew was coming because of their time within the prison. Cleaver writes, I could see around me what was happening to others, but that didn't tell me much about me. I saw that little Jesus was becoming more and more like a woman. He became more feminine in his gesture. There once was a rigidity in little Jesus, as though deep down inside himself, somewhere, perhaps in the last outpost of the soul, he was resisting becoming a bitch. If so, then now he had lost that struggle. No one would have been surprised if little Jesus started sprouting tits. Notice how Cleaver lacks a moral descriptor following his observation of the feminization and homosexual attraction of convicts as in Soul on Ice. Cleaver simply cannot say it is better or worse given the sexual repression of the society toward black men. He makes no comments in this text that speak of homosexuality as aberrational. Throughout the Book of Lives, he explains it as a dynamic both cultivated by the prison and in some sense desired by the prisoner. In this sense, Cleaver aims to observe rather than moralize the condition of the black male prisoner. Despite Cleaver's confession to loving another man, many scholars and gender theorists will insist that this has no effect on our present readings. To some, Cleaver's description of little Jesus will appear to be consistent with his homophobic criticisms of Baldwin in Soul on Ice. These scholars will no doubt maintain that Cleaver may have been a repressed homosexual, but he was still a homophobe. However, the careful scholar must attend to the meanings being corrected, scratched out, revised throughout the original text before simply insisting on the correctness of our present perspective. Cleaver actually says, I could see around me what it looked like others were becoming to me. This suggests that he maintains the position he took upon recognizing his initial attraction to little Jesus in the shower, that convicts have no will to resist the imposition of others on them. Little Jesus is seen as a woman because that is what Cleaver sees as representing his sexual attraction to little Jesus as a man. This is also the fungibility Newton claimed is exposed by Baldwin's kiss. Cleaver's malleability to the will of others because he lives his life as the vessel of the convict. The convict was not simply the creation of the prison, but the sociogenic production of the society that produced the prison and gave rise to that which we know as the prisoner. The convict is reactive, an empty self of rage. He has little faith in anything or anyone. 
as they did from little Jesus, all love and social relationships retreat from the convict. Cleaver understands the convict as a social, a lonely and abandoned entity. He writes, even our wives and lovers whose bed we've shared, with whom we shared the tenderest moments and most delicate relations, leave us after a while, put us down, cut us clean aloose, and treat us like they hate us. The convict internalizes this social isolation and reacts. He is distrustful of social sentiment and craves revenge, or, as Cleaver puts it, all society shows the convict its ass and expects him to kiss it. The convict feels like kicking or putting a bullet in it. A convict sees a man's fangs and claws and learns quickly to bear and unsheath his own for real and final. And that's what we will pick up at for next Friday or next Thursday. Going to take me a while to adjust next Thursday for the book club. Uh, we will pick up there next Thursday. <clears throat> With that number again, 641-715-3640. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61. If you would like to participate, number again, 641-715-3640, the code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Uh, we have about a half hour left in the broadcast. Uh, I am particularly curious if folks have any thoughts about Dr. Curry's concept of the black male prisoner being a fucking thing. I thought that was fascinating. Uh, if you have thoughts, questions, uh, things didn't make sense and, and you would like an explanation, that would be grand too. Uh, if you have a hand up, feel free. If you've not shared at all, you should definitely get a hand up now to make sure that we do not miss you as we move along. Uh, everyone with a hand up, line should be open. Proceed. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. All right. Um, the little Jesus, who is the character that uh, um, Eldridge Cleaver describes in his book, uh, which Tommy, Dr. Curry refers to, uh, the... You know, it, it's so funny. I've uh, once again I've invoked the name of Bill Cosby again. Uh, little Jesus actually gets off the first time, but then the second time uh, the DA uh, brings him to trial again, and they convict him with a different jury. So uh, once again, Bill Cosby uh, comes to mind in that particular uh, instance. And apparently, Little Jesus, I guess he's a um, black black man, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but he seems like he's a black man um, victim, uh, but he's also confused in regards to his belief of Christianity. He thinks white people uh, really practice Christianity. Uh, they don't. So uh, his, uh, I guess, you know, his, his confusion in 
uh, white people being true Christians uh, got him into more trouble and got him basically deeper into uh, another thing that Cleaver is describing as, you know, more feminine and and just basically, you know, just lost within the self uh, within the prison system. Uh, I can't really comment uh, on the question that you had, so I'll just have to think about that one. Uh, that's all I have on me in my line. Requesting more time to think is always allowed, generally an intelligent uh, decision. Other folks who have a hand up, uh, if you have commentary to share, proceed. Nothing stood out from second audio segment. Other folks just listening in. Ain't too much, perhaps. Uh, I will share a thought uh, or two. I generally prefer to wait, but I'll share a few thoughts and then see if other folks uh, have anything that stood out. Before I even uh, begin, recognize Dr. Curry uh, for just the detailed scholarship. He talked about uh, going and reading the manuscript, uh, manuscript, the careful scholar, going to read the typewritten edition of Soul on Ice so he can see, well, what were the corrections? What did this originally say? And then comparing it to the final edition uh, so that you can get a deeper understanding of the thought process and how this book was put together and a deeper understanding of the ideas that this person had and how they put this uh, text together, what they thought about that, uh, these ideas. I just think that's uh, the depth of his research uh, and putting this together. Nod to Dr. Curry on that. Uh, I asked about the concept of the black male in prison being a fucking thing. Uh, you can certainly relate that to Little Richard. I think that is, it's hugely important. I know James Baldwin mentioned in the text, uh, he has the concept of the black male being a walking phallus, uh, but the fucking thing that you are a walking phallus to be used by anyone for any purpose and or destroyed uh that you can be used destroyed before after uh doesn't matter uh, i think it's it's a the word that he's using in the text it would be heteronormative uh that the black male is a walking phallus and feverish for white women not the black male is sexually exploited by white women killed in the name of white women and sexually terrorized and exploited by white men uh, and recon uh, kind of reconceptualizing the way that we even think of uh, prison in the text. Uh, let's see. I think Mumia Abu-Jamal has a report. Uh, I didn't get a chance to kind of, because I think I'd have to go back and kind of dig through the archives of his uh, podcast, but I think uh, he has a segment recently, like on a, this year, where he's talking about uh, inmates and them wanting to uh, break black male inmates, uh, not having conjugal visits for most of the folks who are in greater confinement, doing that deliberately uh, as a part of the uh, breaking process. 
uh, and encouraging uh, the homosexual activity and or raping the inmates themselves. We've had many reports about them putting hot sauce on inmates, genitals, all of that, and, and thinking all of this is not happenstance. And in fact, that all of this is just a continuation of what always has been in the system of racism, white supremacy. I don't think most people have that type of understanding about uh, prisons and the system of racism, white supremacy. And I don't think most people talk about, even the people that spend a lot of time uh, talking about uh, criminal justice and prison industrial complex do not talk about this being primarily an institution of, of sexual exploitation of black males. Like, mm. let's see. The chapel, uh, I, that was definitely one I was curious about. Uh, the chapel in the prison, uh, Eldridge Cleaver saying that they debated about whether or not the chapel was bugged because this was the designated. It, it, I mean, it almost sounded like, you know, this was institutionally stamped as this is the spot that we will allow the Negras to sodomize one another and them talking about whether or not it was bugged. I would think it would have to be whether or not you had whites who had designed it so that they could view what was happening or whether they had recording devices, audio and video so that they could watch and enjoy, which I would think would surely have to be the case, uh, given my understanding of racism, white supremacy, the, the delectable Negro, uh, if uh, pornography. We had Dr. Carolyn West on the program, her talking about the billion dollar industry of pornography. Why would they not be watching all of this that's going down? Uh, but I was curious if folks had any thoughts about the symbolism of the chapel being the location for these hookups in the prison. Uh, let's see. Just make sure I give more detail on the fucking thing because I, I do think that's so important. The prison, to a large extent, negates the concepts of agency that have now become established as origin, as the origin of individual action. Cleaver is a prisoner. What he is told he is and what he imagines himself to be require an interiorized fantasy, not a deliberate action toward a self authored end. For Cleaver, he does not yet know what he is to be. He is a fucking. Thing. He is thought to be so from birth. So in this moment, he doubts his desire and lust, this feeling he insinuates as care towards Richard. Uh, and this is him after the scene where he's admitting uh, his sexual desire for uh, little Richard, which, again, that is all in the makings of the system of white supremacy, uh, contempt for gender, degenderization. That's what Mr. Fuller calls it. Uh Going over. I'll pause. Did anyone have any thoughts about the chapel being the, the hookup spot uh, that Eldridge Cleaver talks about? At San Quentin, where Charles Manson uh, was later located, they even were talking about locking up Michael Jackson there if he had been convicted uh, in, that was 2005. Uh, they were going to send him to San Quentin, if my memory is correct. Any thoughts on the chapel being the designated hookup spot? Eldridge Cleaver's thoughts on that and Little Jesus? Can I be heard? Can I be heard? <clears throat> Sorry, firefighter, please. All right. Thank you, sir. Uh, yes, uh, my my thoughts on it uh, being that a quote unquote chapel is supposed to uh, representatively be a institution, uh, a religious institution, and. Uh, primarily with the mixture that uh, uh, Mr. Cleaver 
uh, puts on it uh, on what activity is being done in that institution, the religion becomes sex, uh, which is a uh, which is the second most powerful uh, interaction between people. And when it's mixed in under a global system of racist white supremacy, it is probably the the most ultimate power to confuse non-white people who are victims of racist white supremacy, therefore solidifying for white people the system of racism white supremacy. Uh, and it doesn't just stops in greater confinement because uh, on purpose, the racists have a re revolving door effect to whereas this pestilence ends up being uh, going out of the walls of greater confinement into the regular sense of confinement into areas where non primarily where non-white non-white people are at, especially non-white black people in the uh, basically the, the uh, incorrect understandings and activities into sexual uh, behavior is rampant. Is rampant in, in areas where non-white people are at. Uh, and uh, I would say through the second reading, uh, it, it informs me about the, the science that white people who uh, have that particular uh, charge under the system of racist white supremacy, which is, which is to watch the niggers in greater confinement, actually is made, you know, made it out of a, a scientific approach. Uh, uh, you know, from the time that uh, non-white people go in to the point that they leave out. Uh, hopefully, I'm making sense based on based on what I've heard in the last, the, the, this, this second reading, you know, as far as activity is going on. You know, at first, uh, at first when I first, when he first was talking about uh, uh, Jesus, I, I, the first thing, first thing came to my mind was Charles Manson, because I think he also had that nickname uh, while he was in prison. I, 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 was, I was just thinking that, that he may have been talking about him, but when he said it was a black male, then that kind of like, you know, brought me back to reality but uh what was your what was your question that you 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 had at the beginning that you were uh asking people to try to answer dr curry uh talking it's in the same passage that i just read from him uh conceptualizing black male the black male prisoner uh as a fucking thing uh that uh, you are just there a penis that can be used or destroyed at will as racist seafood it, however they want to use or uh, misuse you. Uh, what did folks think about that? Uh, I, I'm not sure on where he would be going with it, but what, what it brings to my mind is kind of like basically what I've been saying, is that uh, it uh, just sounds a familiar reflection of what white people would do, being that they would have control of, of, of the institutions that are called greater confinement, uh, with black males and a growing number of black females now, but being that the subject matter is about black males, I'll stay with that and to say that uh, that's that's primarily one of the most most uh, 
oftentimes functions that goes on uh, in those institutions uh, in some form or fashion on a daily basis to whereas uh, I can see where Dr. Curry was talking about as far as a a person being uh, being formed mentally and physically into a a six foot sex object, which would once again would work in the favor of the global system of racism white supremacy so i i i i think i can i i think I can see some sense into what what he is uh uh speaking about within your question yeah Much obliged, retired firefighter. Uh, the mail caller who yielded the floor. Thank you, sir. Not hearing you. Uh, mail, I think that was our caller in Chicago uh, yes. who yielded yes. to retired firefighter. Okay. Hello. Yeah. Um, yeah, that was uh, the. The chapel scenario definitely was interesting. I, I, I mean, I, I agree. Definitely was observed. Definitely was a place that was absolutely bugged, uh, audio-wise and video-wise. And I think it's interesting in, in these days and times when seeing um, so many instances of um, uh, rape going on in the churches uh, around the globe in this global system of racism, white supremacy, um, and how. <laughs> just initially that they um, they came into other countries, so-called third world countries, um, European so-called whites, and had established a church first um, before anything else, and and then used that as the um, stand, as a, a foundation to encroach and and spread everything else that they had to spread or wanted or wanted to get control and and used to get control of the people of, in that location, wherever they were globally. And it's interesting, even in prison, <laughs> that this is a scenario where that place is the place where that action seems to take place. Um, also, the the comment in regards to the fucking thing, I think um, on page 88, uh, lower middle, uh, in the middle paragraph, uh, while Cleaver's lust for little Jesus certainly does change the heteronormative, hyper-masculine framing of Cleaver's life and our present interpretations of his works, a more central point is being made about the relationship of black male sexual repression, the fear and anxiety of it, and the manufacturing of the black male body as a purely sexual object product within the walls of prison. And I, 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 I digress because, like, I, I just don't think it's, he says prison, but also outside of prison as well. I mean, uh, Nelly Fuller was on uh, talk. He was on another uh, show recently, and he basically stated, and he was speaking in regards to the black male that was shot, that was a security guard, that he was shot obviously due not just due to the fact that um, he had a gun on him, but the fact that his skin, his skin color, is his skin color is a uniform it is a prison uniform and even outside of the, of the so-called prison system 
our skin color is a prison uniform, and people are fully aware of that and treat us as such, as um, sec- purely sexual objects. Um, that being said, jump into page 82, and this I think is very important in, in, in regards to outside of prison walls. Cleaver writes and, and then adds, and this, sorry, this is 82, middle paragraph. Cleaver writes and then adds, then he painted for the jury a picture of his life rooted like a tree in the Baptist church. Cleaver points out somewhat flippantly that little Jesus presented a model nigger that would make Booker T. Washington leap with joy in his grave if he could see it. A a technically skilled, literal, voting Christian nigger with a family, regardless of the majority of the jury, voted not to convict him. Now, I I think it's very important to note um, the fact that he's pointing out that little Jesus was the the, the, uh, uh, almost like the the prototype of what white society would like to see of a black male and how they have, how in that instance that, and I'm I'm not saying this, that it's always the case, but how in the instance when this prototype black male is in prison, what essentially he becomes, he becomes effeminized. And 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 as he stated, it is true that if obviously I be, I believe it's true that when you're in there, you don't know what you will become. But I do believe that in the likingness of whites in society, liking the way you act outside of prison, that more than likely that is leading to some kind of subordination, some kind of docile uh, um, activity that you present to them or feeling you present to them as a little boy, a little subject, a little walking fucking thing. And I think henceforth, little Jesus, that's why he became what he became, because he was already in, in somewhat of a state. And I'm just hypothesizing, but that's what I, I, I have kind of noticed in, in I work in corporate, and I noticed that the, the black males that do get um, roles and positions tend to be more feminized and docile um, than anything else. Um, one last thing, I think this is a, where we left off, page 86, top paragraph. Um, the, uh, the question of whether, this is, I'm not going to run on to this too long, the question of whether or not the garden chapel was bugged had been debated for years. Um, hold on. Yes, here it goes. Um, Cleaver used the chapel to illustrate the use of the sacred to maintain and the sentiments of the state. Even the place of faith, the boundary between the will of the flesh and the piety of the soul is ruled by the white sexual order of society. I think that that is <laughs> that is a great, great line. I think it's a, a great observation. I really like the fact that he pointed that out. And I think that that should be noted um, heavily in our society as far as the control that they have across all borders, even going into this this so-called place, this holy place, where even they have the rule over your your body and your soul. Um, That being said, I will mute my line, and thank you for allowing me to share. Much obliged. Uh, Thank you for your commentary, sir.
Princess, did you have uh, comments that you wanted to share, ma'am? Hello? Yes, ma'am. Uh, oh, no. I'll, I'll – never mind. I was just listening. Right on. Uh, also thought uh, the paragraph where he says uh, – and this goes right to the point the mail caller just shared uh, – Greater confinement, Mr. Fuller says. He doesn't say prison. He just says greater confinement, the entire uh, planet, the entire known universe under the system of white supremacy is a gigantic prison. Uh, but the section where he says black, uh, black, the black male body, wait a minute, black men lack power to appeal to or access patriarchal masculinity in prison. In fact, it is their imprisonment that enables the anxiety that white society feels toward the black male body to be internalized as the psychology of the black male mind as the newly created convict. Eleanor Novak's work on black masculinity under incarceration reiterates this powerlessness of black men within prison. Masculine norms in prison are deeply affected by confinement loss of autonomy, surveillance, rigid institutional rules, and lack of resources. And I thought, you know, I think for black males in general, not just Bill Cosby, black males in general, I think in the system of of white supremacy, experience some level of confinement, lack of autonomy, surveillance. We talk about that every workplace racism tomorrow, rigid institutional rules, and lack of resources. I think black males, regardless, and black females, wherever they happen to be, experience that. Again, uh, it's it's beyond. But and I think that also goes to him talking about these feelings of uh, lacking autonomy and being recreated, not being a man, uh, even your sexuality uh, deteriorating under these conditions. That's why I think when Mr. Fuller says that happens to black males, not just in greater confinement, but beyond, uh, where you can end up having a little Jesus situation for someone who's never been in prison. That is the system of racism, white supremacy. Really important point, I thought. Uh, anything else folks wanted to make sure they get in? Can I bear? Yes, sir. Um, the, uh, one, the previous uh, male caller that uh, commented on the the Garden Chapel, I think he was on point with that. Uh, in the system of white supremacy, uh, they love to, uh, uh, to me, they love to desecrate uh, sacred and religious uh, spaces, especially spaces where we think, like I said, it's supposed to be safe. Um, you know, in particular, I thought about, you know, the shootings in the churches uh, that, that's been happening or, and then the attempted shooting uh that that happened uh about a month ago uh and then you know i'm thinking about the you know going back to you know even back to the 60s where the bombing uh of the church where it killed the four black girls so uh that's uh you know it's an interesting scenario religion of white supremacy uh is what i sum it up as uh as far as the fucking thing um i remember um you had uh, uh, Dr. Uh, uh, um, Nasayan, I think that was his name, uh, and the topic came up about uh, being fucked. And I think he kind of expressed it as, you know, being violated. Uh, 
And that actually comes to mind when it comes to, you know, the fucking thing. It's like, uh, you know, he's constantly being violated uh, in prison, outside of prison. And that's what I think. It's it's more of a violent term to me when you when you take, you know, fuck. You know, it's like a violent term. So you're being violated. Uh, you're, you know, you're a violated thing. And, uh, Gus, I wanted to ask you, I, I, I know uh, you, uh, the book club went over uh, Nelson Mandela's book, The Long Walk to Freedom, and I know he discussed his time in prison. Um, and I know there was the, the, uh, the pissing incident with the guards. Did Mandela disclose any kind of, like, you know, perverse sexual activity among the guards? And that, that's all I have on me my line. I interpreted the urinating on them because that came up repeatedly. I interpreted that as a sexual act, um, but I don't remember uh, him talking about anything other than the urinating part as, or I don't, yeah, I don't remember any other acts beyond the urination um, being sexual. I do remember him describing uh, the inmates requesting photographs of his like young daughters and family members uh, so that they could masturbate. That was brought up uh, this week as well. So maybe that's two, uh, the deliberate isolation. You don't get conjugal visits, the deliberate denial uh, of sexual desire uh, to these black males. That, so I guess that would be two. Those are the only two that I recall from right now. Okay. Thanks. Mm-hmm. Uh, other folks, uh, last mo- is that someone? Yeah, this is um, Francis. Yes, ma'am. Oh. No, I was going to say in closing, I do have to make a bit of a confession. I just, uh, I, I don't know. It's, it's kind of hard, uh, I guess, to hear some of this stuff because uh, I'm a female, and I guess I've been conditioned in a way to, I guess, um, really not take into consideration to some degree of knowing uh, really uh, just how black males have been uh, sexually terrorized and violated. Um throughout history, and um, I really didn't think about it too much until a while back when my dad um, had personally talked to me about some stuff with him because he was trying to speak to all of us about things that have happened to us, and so he kind of came out the closet with a few things that had happened with him, so... And then until I start, you know, listening to the show and then, you know, things like that, I I think for some of us women, I guess it's kind of part of the conditioning because I even still struggle with hearing black males talk about stuff like this because it's not saying that I don't believe them, but at the same time, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I guess I gotta I gotta figure out why that is. So. 
Much obliged for sharing. Uh, Dr. Curry, he has an audio segment. I think it might be from the same lecture that I started today's uh, broadcast with, but he has a segment where he says that uh, when he writes about this, when he goes out and talks about the man and these concepts and how black males also are victims of sexual uh, violence in the system, he says that uh, it's personal for him because when he goes out and gives these talks, not only does he have a lot of people who, as he says at the beginning of the book, boo him and tell him to shut up and, you know, you're lying and we're not going to talk about black male issues. But he also says that he has a lot of black males who come and say, hey, that happened to me. You know, I experienced this. He says he's got that from a lot of black males uh, over the years. And so that that uh, had a big impact on how he goes about doing this work and even motivating him to want to uh, continue to do this work. So I think that's important. And I think just adding, I think that we have been conditioned to, I think it talked about so regularly, uh, devaluing the sexual abuse of black females. Uh, but that happens with black males intensely. Uh, where We're just not conditioned to think about or accept that black males can be victims of sexual violence, that this happens. Uh, or to empathize about that at all. I think that's a big part of, uh, we're going to talk more about that in this book. Dr. Curry is going to make that a more emphatic point, but I think it's very, very important. Uh, something we talked about on the program with Dr. Curry, in fact, explicitly. Uh, much obliged again to Princess and the rest of the callers. I guess the person who dialed in, 6260? Six two six zero. Did you have comments you wanted to get in? I got the line open. Let's try it again. Six two six zero. Did you have commentary that you wanted to share? Uh, yes. Um, this is Dr. Mania. I didn't. I just heard Draftomania. That's all I heard. This is Draftomania. Your audio is very low. It's very hard to uh, hear you. I don't know if you sound muffled, kind of. One second. We'll be here tomorrow, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. If you're participating in Black Friday, take your pepper spray, mace, stun gun, and anything else you need to uh, bludgeon individuals as you go to grasp your items in the aisle and then get back for workplace racism, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific, uh, Friday evening. All right, Draft the Mania, are you there? Hello? Uh, yes, can hear you. Still doesn't sound crystal clear, but can hear you. Okay. Um, what I wanted to say is that I, I haven't been um, reading the book, but I've been listening to the book, and I've been getting a lot out of it. And I wanted to say that I have also been um, conditioned to think in a certain way regarding um, men, black um, males or men uh, in the penal system and in regards to um to uh, homosexuality, I had always been uh, of the, you know, type of thinking that uh, when males go to prison and they engage in homosexuality, that that's just the way that they are. 
But um, just from listening to this program tonight, my stance on that has changed because as me knowing that the environment can produce and cause conditions and behaviors in, in, our, in people in general. It can cause diseases and all types of things. Then why um, wouldn't it um, be uh, that the, that type of environment can also produce those types of behaviors in regards to, like, um, choosing uh, to engage in homosexual acts? So um, that, I'm just following the logic. So it just made me change my whole perspective um, on that um, on that topic. And, um, yeah, that's all I have to share. Much obliged, Draptomania. I did think that was a powerful section uh, included from Eldridge Cleaver's manuscript about the transformation in greater uh, confinement uh, and even the transformation in himself, not even knowing what was happening uh, to himself. Very important, uh, the system of white supremacy. Uh, with that, we will halt. We will resume next Thursday. Uh, we are still in Chapter 2, so there will be more on Mr. Eldridge Cleaver's text. Uh, but enjoying the work, if we have questions, we can ask Dr. Curry as we proceed. We're not even halfway through the book. We'll be here tomorrow for Workplace Racism, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Compensatory call-in on Saturday, 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific. And Global Sunday Talk on Racism Sunday, 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific. I hope you all will be safe. Uh, don't eat too much. Exercise. Still in the system of racism, white supremacy. Uh, if you're able to have constructive contact with relatives, folks you care about, grand. Uh, but we are still under a system of racism, white supremacy. We should use our time wisely in accordance with that fact. With that, sobriety would be best. Uh, don't think this is the time for eggnog and vodka or rum or whatever it is uh they're going to have checkpoints out probably in locations where black people reside going to have audio clip about that on the compensatory call in this weekend uh let's protect our brain computers so that we can solve the problem racist man racist woman racist child in addition to being sober let's make sure that we are buckled up every time we are in a vehicle driver or passenger, let's do all that we can to minimize contact with race soldiers, badge or no. That's it. Creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cal signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, Your brother. Problem. You're a victim. <laughs> Shut I'm a victim up. of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm-hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs> With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, 
sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.